uh, testing our microphone. This is a Danny test microphone. Georgie, go ahead. Georgie, test microphone, one, two. So, guys, please let us know uh, who is louder. If, if one person is louder than the other one, it's just very helpful for you guys to help us out with that. So let us know. Okay, mic check without the music on. So this is Danny's mic. Okay, go ahead, Georgie. Mic check without the music. This is Georgie's mic. Okay, guys, let us know. Said I'm louder. So I'm going to turn down mine a little bit. Okay, turn my volume down. Yours is turning up now. Really? Okay, so now yeah. the music is off. Georgie, and, uh, go ahead one more time. Uh, Georgie, mic check. I am, one, two. I am lower. Just better to get this stuff out of the way and not like 30 minutes later. Kyle says Danny's slightly louder. Maybe let's push the microphone back. Turn down a little Okay, that should be good. And we're live. <laughs> Guys, thanks so much for bearing with us. We had lots of technical issues and scheduling issues as well. So uh, thank you guys so much for bearing with us. Georgie, how are you, sir? I'm all right. Thanks for inviting me again. Always a pleasure. You make this show worth doing. So, uh, what's what's new with you? Uh, not much. You know, checking along with my studies. Um, the, I'll send you the report because some people have started to question me when I'm going to turn into another on the back of a tiger, <laughs> fake <laughs> promise. <laughs> but the coordinal study is is complete. It's already the report is written. I'll send you the full report. Now, now we're basically struggling to um, to get it past peer review. Uh, we've already had a few a few uh, fights there because they're saying like um, we really don't like this like alternative therapy to cancer. Why don't you guys have a uh, control group which had had like a like a chemo standard chemotherapy drug? You know this is going to confuse people. They'll start thinking that progesterone and DHEA can treat or prevent cancer. And we're like that's kind of the point <laughs> of the whole study. Well, do you want to back up a little bit? Like, what is cortisone and what are you doing? Oh, yeah. Cortinone is a combination of progesterone and DHEA and dissolved in vitamin E and oils. Um, so it's actually the we, we did a test with cortinone. We call it cortinone plus. So the ratio, Ray typically recommends a ratio of progesterone to DHEA anywhere from like one to one to three to one. And I think you also have a video on your website how to make a three to one uh, mixture, right? Not a video, but it's an article on my uh, Patreon that's available. If you just type in progesterone, DHEA, Roddy, and and Patreon, I think it will come up. Yeah. So, so yeah, I mean, we have a cortinone version, which is the regular one. It's, it has a three to one ratio. But, you know, based on my studies, uh, reading of the studies of with progesterone and its effects on the thymus gland and how anabolic it can be to the thymus and recovering the thymus, et cetera, based on, you know, because with age it, it uh, atrophies. So we created another one called Cortinone Plus, and the ratio of DHEA to uh, progesterone to DHEA is 8 to 1. So I wanted to do like a test with that and see how it does with cancer. So that's the first study with Cortinone Plus on a specific murine cancer in mice. It's it's 100% uh, 
uh, infective, 100% lethal. It's based on a virus. So we use corinone uh, to test what it can prevent, first of all, the, the, the development of the cancer, and second, what it can treat it or at least slow it down after, after it already develops. So I, I think the study turned out very well. Um, I mean, basically, we managed to achieve something that currently no other drug is known to do uh, in circulation. Um, and we're trying to get this published in a cancer journal. And, and now the peer review committee has already sent some questions back and basically it's like saying, you know, we, it, the way the study is designed, you don't have a group of animals that received a standard chemotherapy drug. Why not? And uh, we said we didn't want, I mean, we wanted to compare with control. And there, there already are other studies with established, you know, chemotherapy drugs. And we already know they suck. So, well, the results we got already are, are already way beyond what the what the standard, um, you know, drug would have done. They said, well, um, it, it could be a problem because the way the study is set up right now, it kind of implies that you can use this product, Cortinone Plus, for treating slash preventing cancer. To which we responded, that's kind of the point of the whole study. <laughs> so they didn't like that. I think they'll still publish it, but it's now they're you know they're they're asking for some additional information. They said, give us all the references on progesterone's effects on the on purported protective effects of progesterone against cancer. Like they're right there in the references section. No, we want them separate. We want them ordered by by like impact factor, right? We want them ordered by by basically. Um, um, like how how legitimate these studies would be, right? So it's all these things that, and, you know, it's it's creating extra work for us, but um, it, it, we're already getting pushback and we were told directly the reason is they don't like over-the-counter, they don't like studies with over-the-counter chemicals that, that are kind of like, you know, that are suggesting this cancer can be prevented or treated, right? It's The game is you have to always compare it to an established drug and and in they kind of, they also told us that you know if we had done the one with the established drug as a comparison and cortinol still came out on top they would have refused to publish it <laughs> so they, <laughs> then why do it right i mean this is this is crazy but that's that's there's a lot of politics in science i think i mean to i give ray i give ray full credit because you know he's always said that currently science is nothing but politics in a white coat right um many people hear that and think, oh, this is such an over-exaggeration. This cannot be the case. Not only it is the case, but it's actually mostly, I mean, I want to say mostly, it's like entirely about politics and then science is only considered if there is something for the journal to gain. Like, you know, sci- whether science gains or not, it's they don't care. But if you're doing something that's that's potentially threatening one of their sponsors, and Pfizer is a sponsor of that journal, mm-hmm. um, and Pfizer is, of course, is very big, a very big name in oncology, then uh, then they're gonna give you a hard time. Um, so we'll see. So, anyways, I mean, that's one study where I do, I'm doing the other one with DHT. That seems to be going great. Knock on wood. Um, so I'm also doing uh, another one with methylene blue, uh, uh, but specific our product Oxidel. We're going to test its anti-aging effects in living organisms. If you remember, a study came out about two years ago about methylene blue managing to fully reverse aging in human skin cells, right? Mm-hmm. But it was in vitro. Mm-hmm. So so we will try to do the first in vivo study on methylene blue and see if it actually can fully reverse the aging process in, or, or at least severely retard it um, in, in in vivo um, model, like maybe mouse or like or, or a rat or something. So that's another study. Um, when, and, and, and 
And sorry, well, when should we expect the results of the Cordon one? Like, when would that be wrapped up and fully? The Cordon is yeah. wrapped up. I'll send you the report so oh, yeah. you have it. Uh -huh. I mean, the results are already there. The, mm -hmm. the study is no longer go ongoing. Uh, okay. Right now, the fight is so basically, we send them up, we send the journal the manuscript. Mm -hmm. They go over the, the manuscript and then immediately come back with things they don't like, mm -hmm. they won't change. Mm -hmm. So it's it's basically a back and forth, a back and forth. And this goal it takes, it takes about a month, right? Uh -huh. And after that, they will send you a link which which should be viewable, and I encourage everybody, once I send you the link and you send it to your followers as well, use that link because after two weeks it expires, and after that it has it will be a paywall, and then they'll ask you to pay for the study. Even though we pay them <laughs> to publish the study, then they ask for money from people who want to read it, and after, after about a month, that link, which will be a temporary link for people, uh, they basically say, okay, if you want to send it to some of your colleagues, to some of your friends, relatives, you know, they have about a month to to bask in the glory of your study. After which, it gets removed, it gets set, put behind a paywall, and then you have to pay, uh, which will be like fifty bucks, you know, per review. I'm like, this is ridiculous. You know, this the pay per view at home on Comcast. They ask for fifty bucks for like a a May Floyd Mayweather fight, right? <laughs> Why are you asking people for fifty dollars per download? Well, well, I, well so, that's why SciHub is so important because, like, when when I wrote the my first Hair Like a Fox book in two thousand thirteen, I did not have access to full text papers, and, yep. and like I asked myself, how did you even do that? Like, it, it seems impossible in retrospect, and, and like life without SciHub or or LibGen or whatever seems like it, it, inconceivable. And the fact that you will, I'll go to a pay, uh, uh, abstract and it will have a $40 price tag is, and like you're describing, it's like a Ponzi scheme. It, it, mm -hmm. It's so, uh, it's just unattainable for the average layman to, to read interesting articles. It's, it's like a, it's a tragedy. But it's also a fraudulent model. Like basically like this journal, they, they get paid by the submitters of the studies. So they get – they already – all these studies that they store, right, they already fully paid for by the people who are submitting them, right? So that journal then to take these studies and start reselling them as their own property, that's – that's that to me, that's that's borderline fraud, right? They're not theirs. Like you – and you've paid the journal for the hosting. So you, you, you pay a certain amount of fee. I mean I guess they calculate it. It's like let's say – it's I think it's like four to $500 per study, right? So that, that fee covers – the hosting of that document, the PDF document, for probably like decades in advance. <laughs> so all of their expenses in regards to the study have been paid for fully. And it, then on top of that, they say, you know what? We can make money on top of that. We're going to ask everybody else to pay for that study. And as soon as the study is actually officially accepted by the journal, we, the authors, we are prohibited from, from distributing it. Like we can get sued for essentially for like copyright violation. If I send you a copy of the of the final study that's approved by the journal, and like like after that thirty day uh, grace period for that link, which is open for everybody, after it's over, I no longer own my own study. Like I mean, if I if I have a copy, I can keep it to myself, but I can't send it to you. That's copyright violation. <laughs> I'm stealing the journal's property. This is this is insane. And he actually it gets even worse. Many of the journals actually accept only studies that have been paid for by taxpayers' money. Like. So, so that's and, and right now there are several states actually are passing laws trying to change that because like L, L, some of Elsevier's journals, 
They only accept for publication journals that are coming out of, let's say, either academia or some other kind of an entity. That's the, and this entire study has been paid for by taxpayers' money. Mm-hmm. I think there's a federal law which says that if the taxpayers have paid for it, it's public property. You can't be charging people after that and asking them like, oh, pay me another $50 for the study. No, this study was paid for by the taxpayers already, right? So either post somewhere on your website some kind of an unofficial copy that's free or give some other access that's free because you cannot resell stuff that has already been paid for by the taxpayers. It's illegal. So they've been getting away for, for a long time, but I think it's it's coming to an end, at least for the publicly sponsored studies. The private ones, they'll still continue to extort. Uh, Kyle, who has his PhD and works or has worked or work, currently is working in academia, says the point is to discourage people from accessing the literature. <laughs> and I probably have no doubt. Uh, <laughs> v Pew says, when will Cortison 8 to 1 be released? Uh, probably next week. I don't want to make people wait anymore. Um, so I'll, I'll just release it because the results are good. Um, I'll send you the report. Uh, if you if you want, I mean, we can take some like some of the some of the key takeaways from the study, maybe some of the graphs that I sent you earlier, uh, we can, you know, we can post these and then, and then basically, um, um, I, I will still, I don't, I, I wouldn't want you to post the full report, um, on the open internet, but I'll just send it to you as a verification that the study did occur. Georgie is a co-author. <laughs> I'm not making things up. So, so, and then I, I'll release the, uh, the eight to one version next week because people have been asking about it. And then after after it gets published, hopefully if it gets published, I'll I'll share the link on Twitter, so people will be able to go and view the the glorious paywall <laughs> if they want to. And please don't don't spend the fifty dollars if the study gets published. Believe me, I get nothing from it. So I know people have, have already sent me some emails saying like, "Hey, would it help if we buy your articles?" I'm like, "Please don't do that. The, all the money goes directly to Elsevier or whoever the publishing company is, and I get nothing from it." Um, there are other ways to help out with this research. Don't pay, don't pay the fat cats. They're already too fat, and they're profiting off of our our the knowledge that we're creating. Mm-hmm. Uh, speaking of, okay, if you guys are new here, uh, subscribe, like the stream, uh, leave a comment, and that will enter you in the Idea Labs giveaway, which I totally forgot about. <laughs> uh, if you have questions, we're accepting super chats, and that really helps me out. I appreciate it. Um, idealabsdc.com that's georgie's uh boutique supplement company that we're talking about so you can go there check out his stuff you can follow georgie on twitter at uh, at hated and he's very prolific on there so you should check him out uh, i do coaching at dannyrowdy.com slash resources and i try to make this page uh functional and have lots of different information uh, pieces of information that i get very common questions i get all the time uh, such as testing the thyroid function uh, you can follow me on Twitter, and I have an Instagram uh, that's kind of devoted to food stuff. Um, me and you were talking about the CIA before we started here, <laughs> but, <laughs> but that's what we usually talk about. Um, that's right. But we should probably get into some of the things that you posted on your website, hate.me. And since I start, I led the show title with uh, stuff about keto, and since last month or almost two months ago, I posted a video on keto. It might be fitting that we talk about um, the keto article that you put. The keto diet works only for a week. Then it causes obesity and diabetes. 
Yeah, I think that's a that's a great article. I got so much hate mail over it. <laughs> I I don't know if you've seen that the Twitter feed people like are, are complaining about it too. No, I didn't see it. Uh, yeah, I mean, basically, it actually has the most likes of any article I've ever posted on my blog. So it's not surprising given what how popular Kido is right now. Mm-hmm. Um, what I find interesting and disturbing about this one is that despite the fact that, like, the study itself um, said directly that Kido after about a week or two is actually highly detrimental, it will cause directly diabetes, right? Mm-hmm. That's not what the popular press article said. Actually, that I because I, I checked all the other I mean I took the study right and then I tried to find through Google all the popular press uh, mainstream media that are that that, that that published about the article not a single one of them actually had anything re- in the title that remotely suggests that keto was bad all they said is that uh, there is a, a study comes up with a new optimal uh, like scheduling of the keto diet and and they kept trying to dance around the fact that basically uh, they, they they try to spin it saying like Oh, you should um, keto works best when you use it at a week of a time, and then you give yourself plenty of break in between, right? <laughs> but why, right? You didn't explain why. And if you look at the actual study, it says it right there. It's because it causes diabetes and obesity if you use it for more than a week, and it's pretty simple explanation. Yes, initially, uh, first of all, when you uh, when you uh, get on keto at the beginning, you lose a lot of water mm-hmm. because actually cutting carbs works very similar to uh, like taking a diuretic medication, uh, very similar. You lose a lot of water weight. People think, oh, great, I lost all my extra weight. But actually, no, like most of the fat, it's still there. Actually, you're not really losing much of a fat in the first week or so. Afterwards, which is when you've lost all the excess water weight, and then you're starting to go into you know excessive lipolysis, potentially ketosis even, right? And then, yes, then you're starting to lose the some of the fat. But in the study showed that, the body, because it interprets this as a stress signal, anything that you eat, actually, it's it's mostly stores it. So the storage mechanism vastly overweighs the lipolytic one, the one that you basically, like you're shedding the fat and you're burning it. On top of that, because you're not giving your body any carbs and because lipolysis is so elevated, the liver gets quickly overwhelmed. So anything that the liver cannot glucuronidate, right, uh, the liver will actually try to re-esterify convert it back to triglycerides, and then send it back for storage into the adipose tissue. Mm-hmm. However, you're already eating high-fat diet, so your, your blood is already pretty high on triglycerides, and basically the, the mechanism, um, like the liver has a way of sensing that, and then the liver actually will, will not send as much uh, fat back for storage as you would normally do. It will try to keep it to itself, because it, and then it, that, that's what gives you fatty liver. So, if you look at the studies that use low-carb diets, fatty liver was invariably always present in every single one of these studies. They just don't 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 talk about it that, that much. I mean, it was and they try to they try to uh, belittle it by saying, "Well, look at all this fat that uh, occur per, uh, fat loss that occur peripherally. Look at all these like lean animals, right?" But if you're having a fatty liver, you're already fifty percent. You've already fifty walked fifty percent of the distance towards diabetes. As in another study that I posted recently showed that fatty liver is actually the the major cause behind diabetes. The insulin resistance in the liver, which is what fatty liver would lead to, would actually directly would directly give you as a result. That's that's what increases gluconeogenesis. The liver the liver behaves behaves as if it's under chronic glucose deficiency, which it is, right? Because 
it, it, that's that's really what the presence of the high glucose in the bloodstream tells you in diabetic in diabetics is that is that uh, the the body is trying to compensate for the poor oxidation of glucose by keeping the levels that much more higher, right? Mm -hmm. And the same thing happens with cholesterol. The elevation of cholesterol with age is not simply a sign of a of a, of a lower metabolism, which which it is partially. But another big reason is that the body would actually increase even endogenous synthesis of cholesterol to compensate for the decreased uh, synthesis of steroids downstream. So that's how you will compensate for the for the decreased steroid steroidogenesis by giving even more raw materials. It's the exact same thing with glucose in diabetes and in insulin um, insensitivity as well. So, anyways, long story short, the study says it directly. You use keto for more than a week, you will give yourself diabetes. There's no, there's no question about it. Two things. So first, I can think of many reasons why a person would feel much better switching to a keto diet. So, you know, like especially if they were coming from, I don't know, a standard American diet or a vegan or vegetarian diet. So I, I just don't want to throw that out there. And uh, also, I think Ray talked about the high fat not leading to uh, endotoxin problems or reducing endotoxin in a lot of people. So that could be another benefit. The main gripe, and I, and I put this in the video I have, is people saying that it does not enhance the, the stress state. And the point that I made in the video, I, I said that most the key of the ketogenic and carnivore people that I'm aware of do not have a functional model of metabolic stress that they could explain to you. <laughs> you know, right. I don't, I don't, I don't think they could pitch like elevator pitch it. And again, I, somebody, I please uh, alert me to somebody that does have that. I'm just, I'm not familiar with it. And I, I think that is what you and I are talking about, especially in, in this article. It's uh, the, the things that are happening to get a person into ketosis are not, these like amazing <laughs> things that that low carb and ketogenic and carnivore people uh, say they are. They're metabolism suppressing. And I think um, yeah. Andrew Kim had a good saying and he said that he thought ketogenic people were living at the edge of subsistence. And so as the metabolic rate declines, I think you'd probably have to taper down your calories just to get the what the influx and efflux of fatty acids kind of. Uh, I don't know, to compensate for that. Um, right. Because, because obviously some body, like uh, aesthetically pleasing person or bodybuilder using ketosis, um, I, I think that would be the thing of like, oh, why can so-and-so do ketosis perfectly and they look healthy, you know? So what are you guys talking about? Like they don't, they don't have diabetes or whatever. There was an actress who just recently got interviewed about keto. I, I don't know. I forgot it was uh, it was Gwyneth Paltrow, somebody else. And basically, they asked her like, "How did it go?" And she said, "Well, it was it was tremendous for the first month, and then you hit a wall, and then you then it becomes really hard." And then she said, "And then and then basically she stopped for a while, then she regained the weight, and it become much fatter." And then they're like, "So do you regret anything about it?" She's like, "Well, it looks like once you start, you have to stay on it for life, otherwise." When you like, if you stop it, you become much worse than before, right? So it's like, well, and and her explanation was that, well, uh, it really is an indication of how much of a poor state I was before. So that's really like, it, to her, it was an indication that it's the only diet that works. But the fact that stopping it like makes you that much worse than before, like it, she said it, but it was it was never discussed in the interview. What does that mean, right? And I wanted to say another thing. Point another thing out. One of the main reasons people will go on keto is to lower their fasting blood glucose. 
after a week, actually the, the animals that were in ketosis, actually their fasting blood glucose was much higher than even the one of the control animals. Mm -hmm. So, so yeah, for the first week it's great, right? You, I guess you're cleaning house somehow, maybe like it has some sort of like a reset effect. And after that, after the body gets the signal that you're essentially in starvation mode, because that's what ketogenesis and ketosis really is. After that, then, then all hell breaks loose because you're starting to adapt to this. And then the cortisol, I think I sent you that article, cortisol production increases, cortisol degradation decreases, and, and you're becoming, you're getting into the state of basically, you're prepping the body, you're constantly sending the dietary signal that that you're that you're in an environmental stress, and, and the body adapts to that. So it's harder afterwards to normalize things. Yeah, that's the other thing I wanted to say, and I'll pr probably say this in a video at some point. There's like a huge conversation over whether gluconeogenesis is like uh, involved in stress, if you can believe that. <laughs> but like, but wow. it, but it, but it's motivated by the underlining assumption that carbohydrates are 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 bad, or and a lot of the keto or carnivore people will say they're inherently toxic. And so it's like um, it's like a secondary via what mechanism though? Like how how a pure carbon providing nutrient will be toxic well, via what mechanism? Well, them thinking that hyperglycemia is caused by eating too much carbohydrate. That's ridiculous. It's caused by not burning it. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's at this point, uh, keep in mind there's a drug called Asipimox, which is approved for the treatment of type 2 diabetes. It is a bastardized modification of niacin. So all this drug does, it inhibits lipolysis. So if you go and read about the drug, how it was developed, what was the rationale behind it, it, you're essentially reading Pete's arguments. This is an F keep in mind. This is this is a drug approved by the FDA for the treatment of diabetes type two, and they say right there in their in their application to the FDA is that diabetes and insulin resistance are are um, what do they call it? Um, they're caused by lipotoxemia. It's not the the glucose. I mean, I guess you may argue that th these lipids came as a result of too much glucose and then get converted by fat. But that has already been disproven. You have to eat like a half a kilo, like more than a pound of sugar a day before you start actually converting some of that into fat, right? So unless you're eating that much, and I think most people are way below that level, then then the novel lipogenesis from carbs is really not something to worry about, at least not when you're eating sucrose, fructose, ripe fruit, etc. Starch has a tendency to increase lipogenesis, but that's because of uh, uh, it has an inflammatory effect. But even starch is not that 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 lipogenic. Long story short, like if if all of this fat is caused, I mean, basically, like the you can if there's hyperglycemia, consistent one, uh, basically uh, lasting for more than two three hours after you eating, that's not because of the carbs. I mean, it's it's the carbs are floating around for a reason. It's not the carbs themselves that are to blame. Usually, if you take if you eat even a very large amount of carbs. Even even if the body doesn't want to burn it, if you have a healthy liver, then you should be able to convert it to glycogen, and then your blood glucose, blood glucose should be able to decline back to normal. If it doesn't, you're either insulin resistant or you have fatty liver disease. Both of these are caused by fat. They're not caused by carbs. This is one of the first papers that, that kind of started shifting my thinking, but it's 2002. It's Steinberg et al., and they say uh, non-esterified uh, fatty acid levels increase long before hyperglycemia becomes present. Exactly. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. Look at Pacipimox. It's like it's like a, it's like the history of diabetes. That that the one weird trick your doctor doesn't want you to know is that is that it's the lipids that cause diabetes, and and the carbs are sort of like the innocent bystander. He gets blamed for it.
And of course, uh, just to complete this thought, the the Randall cycle, and that, and I, and yeah. I, I just never hear anybody talking about that. Like, uh, and I, I'm sure we said this before, but the idea that you've solved your alleged like glucose intolerance by removing carbohydrate is like me solving my weak legs by not not working them out at the gym anymore. <laughs> exactly, by not by not by not straining them, yeah. right? So let's let, let's let's. So if you if you're weak, you move less and less and less until you can no longer move. Yeah, it's uh, man, uh, it it really is a, a, a interesting um, thought experiment to enter the world of the low carb people. And again, just to totally clarify, you and I, and correct me if I'm wrong, we're not shilling for some diet. We're not saying don't eat the ketogenic diet or the carnivore diet. Like eat our diet. We're, that's not. I don't think that's your purpose or my purpose where I'm interested in, in what generates health. And, uh, and I believe it's that tug of war between metabolic energy and, and metabolic stress. And that's like the most convincing thing to me and approaching health problems within that context is, uh, just endlessly fascinating to me and why we, I think we do these. And so whenever I will make anything related to stress or, critiquing these type of things, people will invariably say like, well, oh, well it, it will get reduced down to a, a diet to eat. And I, I'm, I'm trying to say like, I think it's a much bigger equation and it's much more interesting than that. Yeah. Um, my only uh, gripe with, with these diet discussions when I, whenever I talk to people is that it always seems to uh, end up in some kind of like a, like, like a tribalism, right? So I'm belong to this type and you to this one. But even, even um, their own fields, if you look at the individual fields, they, they've recognized most of what we've already dis- uh, what we're discussing here. First of all, talk to an, an, to a, an evolutionary biologist and they'll tell you that the purpose of fat is to be used as a fuel during long-term starvation, right? There is no way you can use that and say, well, and it's also it's also a signal. It's like so if you start burning fat, means you don't have food. That's that's what it comes down to. That's how it works in nature. So if you're burning fat, whether it's through eating only fat or by like fasting yourself and and sort of forcing lipolysis, that is the one of the primordial stress signals that you have in, have encountered a period of either insufficiency of food or excess and or excess of stress. Um, and this study um, on the ketogenic diet causing diabetes after a week actually says that. So it's like a keto diet tricks the body into burning fat, and during that, it the body acts as if it is in a starvation state, although it is not, right? And begins to burn fats instead of carbohydrates. So, so by using this diet that is low on carbs, you're sending the signal to the body that, and the body can't doesn't know any different, right? It thinks that you're under some kind of a stress star uh, slash starvation and that was the that was the original signal the body doesn't know exactly what's standing in front of you but it mimics very well the stress response so you can achieve the exact same thing so you can whether you're in ketogenesis because you're eating too much fat and only fat or you're under tremendous stress and lipolysis is 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 is, uh, rising to the level of completely crowding out glucose oxidation it's the same thing to the body right so by eating, by putting yourself in ketosis, you're you're recreating the stress response um, when it when you don't need it, right? You're not being chased by tigers. You're not running away from anybody. But by eating, by triggering this endogenously, by manipulating your diet, you're effectively recreating the stress response. Read a study. It's it, I mean this is every study on low carb diets 
usually has a paragraph where they try to argue this away because they know it is a problem. In evolutionary biology, fats are known as the fuel that is used during stress, and basically it's what what this is already accepted. What's more controversial is whether eating more fats mimics the stress response. But every study that I've seen so far says yes. Good stuff. Uh, and, and I don't really get involved with the, these types of arguments, but I, I did post uh, something. Um, I forget where this was from. I think it was like a Science Daily article. And they say, is fruit eating responsible for our big brains? Because uh, one of the most common things is people always uh, uh, going back to their kind of fantasy evolutionary arguments of whatever they prefer how how they think we evolved, you know? Um, and so just to throw a wrench into that. And then uh, Kyle, who's in the chat, and I did steal an analogy from him. Uh, he has a good, really great paper called The Dangers of Fat Metabolism and PUFA, Why You Don't Want to Be a Fat Burner. And what was the last thing I posted here? Um, oh, there's a book that I really enjoy called The Hot Brain. And in that book, they say, to be warm is an inherent property of life. To be constantly warm is probably a key, ste uh, key step in the evolution that led to the ultimate achievement and development of the human organism. Thus, the primary event required for life, even before acquiring food and water, was generating a hot brain. And so, again, I don't think ketosis, like anybody who's entered ketosis and things knows that the, the body temperature uh, becomes lower. And so, again, this is kind of the antithesis to the hypothesis we're putting forward. There is a guy at MIT. He's a computer scientist slash mathematician. Uh, I think you've seen some of the articles that I posted on him. His theory about how life uh, basically – and what life is is basically it's a heat dissipation process. And in his theory, the more heat you dissipate, the higher the developmental state of the, of the living organism. Um, and he even says in one of his articles that he thinks that stars are alive and basically stars are like these highly evolved, developed, um, like living organisms. And he got him thrown out of one of the conferences because they call him an, an animist, right? <laughs> but, but it's a very, I think it's a very fascinating, interesting theory is that it, 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 that's what really life is. And, and the more effectively you dissipate, uh, energy you've taken in from the environment as food as heat, the more, the healthier and the more stable you are. So if you look at all of the, the like the highly advanced organisms intellectually on Earth, all of them happen to be warm-blooded, number one. And actually, if you look at the correlation between between temperature, blood, uh, body temperature, and intelligence, the four smartest ones, if you believe, they actually happen to have the highest average body temperature. It's us, dolphins, elephants, corvids, which includes ravens and uh, and crows, and I think uh, octopus. Uh, is also one of them, uh, but I haven't looked on the, uh, 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 I haven't checked on the on the data on the temperature as well. But the first ones I mentioned, they're known as having the highest the highest body temperature uh, of any other uh, living organism. Okay, we can move on. The we should go back to the cortisol one, but I did uh, I forgot about this one. The lowering DHT synthesis causes severe hypothyroidism despite higher T levels. I really appreciate you posting this because uh, um, uh, well I won't I won't give it away. Do you want to? Describe this a little bit. I mean, it was just it was just a study that I was reading, and it caught my eye. I mean, it's basically they said that uh, it's a, a well-known side effect of the five alpha reductase inhibitors was hypothyroidism, um, and sometimes they even call it the sick euthyroid state. Mm -hmm. So basically, you go to the doctor. I mean, you're feeling crappy, right? But they'll check your thyroid, they check temperature, you look fine. Yet you have all of these symptoms of hypothyroidism, and apparently. 
the, the, the side effect of the 5-alpha reductase inhibitors was known way before the whole pulse finasteride syndrome and all the other related uh, symptoms appeared and, and, and got codified, like sexual dysfunction. So all of that, if you look at these things, every single one of them happens to be actually a symptom of hypothyroidism, right? Um, and of course, like the recent study about a year and a half ago that I posted about that they found the demilionation of nerves. Mm -hmm. uh, some of some of them are resp were responsible for 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 ejaculation, for orgasm as well. So whenever you have a demilionating disease happening anywhere in the body, you either have you have three things possible. Number one, toxin. Um, uh, heavy metals can do it. Lead can do it. Radiation, ionizing radiation can do it. Polyunsaturated fats can do it uh, because they greatly interfere with the synthesis of myelin. Second thing that can cause it is estrogen, mm -hmm. right, mm -hmm. and, and cortisol. And the third thing is hypothyroidism. Mm -hmm. That's actually one of the reasons for the weakness, uh, the systemic weakness that people with hypothyroidism experience. And the sensory disturbances, the tingling, um, basically sometimes uh, they call hemiparesis. Like uh, they'll have like a numb leg or a numb arm. And these things will like change. We will switch from the left to the right side all the time. So they may get like a like a numb face too, like part of it. It mimics very very much the symptoms of stroke, actually, to the point of being indistinguishable. All of these are symptoms of hypothyroidism, um, and that those also happen to be every se sexual dysfunction, uh, you know, cognitive dysfunction, demilionation, all of the orgasm problems, uh, like uh, like low temperature. All of these things happen to be part. If you look at the pulse finasteride syndrome and look at the list of complaints, you're reading one-to-one -one mapping of all the symptoms of hypothyroidism. And, and I think it's – we've talked about this before, but I think it's important to part out, uh, point out that the, the hair loss is likely from hypothyroidism. And then, yes. and then the person is taking finasteride, and it's just making things much worse for uh, a lot of people. Which, if you read the actual drug, they have a warning saying that if you discontinue the 5-alpha reductase inhibitor, you will end up in a worse state than before. Oh, really? So it's it, – yeah, it's only while you're taking it. So so it's like – and they warn you because, I mean, clearly, it's almost like the keto diet, like that actress said. Once you start on it, you better stay on it or after that you'll get much worse. And I found this to be the case with many um, like like allopathic medical interventions. Like basically, like once you start on something, you you cannot quit it, or you will end up, you know, worse than where you before. SSRIs, anti-anxiety drugs, like antipsychotic drugs, all of them. It's it's almost like they were developed with the goal of hooking you up, mm -hmm. right? And then and then basically after that, you're a slave for life. Like you cannot wean yourself off of these drugs unless you're willing to pay really, you know, re really high price. Um, just just Google clonopin withdrawal YouTube. And you will see some some very nice quote unquote. I mean, be sarcastic here. Some very nice videos. They'll give you nightmares for weeks. Uh, just because we're on a, a low carb kick, do you want to quickly address the glucose is anabolic for the thymus? Because th that is one of the things that is so uh, repeated that uh, sugar will uh, de uh, interfere with your immune system in some way. You know? Exactly. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, this, th this thing showed the exact opposite, and more importantly, it showed the glucose itself, not the metabolites of glucose. Just the very presence of glucose in the bloodstream was already enough to trigger the regeneration of the thymus and increases the levels of T cells in the blood. Um, and, and, you know, that's, that's, that was the conclusion of the article that certain macronutrients, um, actually all, of, all the three of the macronutrients, they have signaling capabilities as well. They're not just fuel. So it's like you think of 
you think of glucose as a fuel, but clearly now it has it actually has a signaling mechanism because it's it's triggered the regeneration of the thymus without actually at the same time serving as a fuel, right? So that is a signaling function. Uh, fats have a signaling function. We like to think of it as fuel, but they're much more than that. And I think that's that's the most dangerous part and probably one of the least understood part in the keto community is that fats are not just fuel. They're actually a signal. It's a signal for the cells, a signal for the organism. You know, we talked about signal as a stress signal, right? They mimic the stress signal, et cetera. Protein is also a signal. I mean, the amino acids themselves, even though they're used for building up our tissues and cells, they're also neurotransmitters. We know about glycine. We know about tryptophan. We know about about taurine. We know about um, uh, tyrosine. We know about phenylalanine. So there's so many of these amino acids. So uh, I think Ray has one record where he said that we, if you're taking the amino acids in isolation, some of their effects are indistinguishable from hormones. Mm-hmm. Um, and he used to annoy his students by by uh, asking them to consider the potential hormonal effects of any foreign body that, that the organism gets in contact with because that's really that's really how the body interacts. So if it, if it can be digested, it will. If it cannot, then the body will interact with it and that effect uh, you know, cause and effect is is a is a hormonal um, uh, relationship. I love it, and I had brought up on my Twitter that I posted uh, levels of dietary carbohydrate can be considered the major signal in the body of the fed and and the fasted state. And studies on fast uh, on fasting or carb deprived nutritional treatments, a good correlation has been found uh, between serum T three and ketone concentrations. Oh, uh, just another comment on that. I'm sure you're familiar with the studies that show that um, during marathon. Um, people can actually regain their strength. They feel exhausted if they if they do a mouthwash with a sweetened water mm-hmm. without ingesting it. Mm-hmm. Have you heard about these studies? Uh, I've re- I, it rings a bell that you mentioned it before. So again, signaling function, and the, and even though they, they they claim it's unknown, apparently the presence there's sweet there's some receptors in the in the tongue and the gums and the lining of the mouth and even potentially even in the lips in the lips and basically apparently the presence of sugar. It's it's interpreted as a signal of of an end of the stressful state. So so whenever this happens, this is a signal for the brain's uh, enzyme tryptophan hydroxylase to downregulate its activity. So the reason most people experience fatigue during marathons and whatnot is not it's very often not the lack of fuel, but it's the buildup of serotonin. It's called the central fatigue hypothesis. Mm-hmm. And in fact, there are a number of different companies out there that work on drugs that block tryptophan hydroxylase, and they're they're hoping that these drugs will be used for officially chronic fatigue syndrome, but unofficially doping drugs for athletes. So sh- sugar has a signaling mechanism, and one of its primary signaling mechanisms is to signal systemically the body that stress is over, bad times are over. Yeah, just to tag along on that, the I'm sure we've shared this on this show before, but uh, um, as sugars go up, hypersensitivity drops in 1963 article, and it says that his, show, uh, his study showed that immediate hypersensitivities in experimental animals depends on the uh, amount of sugars in their body fluids. When the sugars are increased, the hypersensitivity, re, uh, hypersensitivity reactions are decreased. When sugar is decreased, the reaction is increased. Therefore, to avoid hypersensitivity reactions, sugars in the body fluids uh, should be kept high by feeding well, he said. Um, yeah. And maybe we could tie... <laughs> I'm on like a low-carb kick today. Maybe we could tie in your cortisol um, article with the general uh, um, 
idea of the morphostasis or the Jamie Cunliffe uh, uh, immunity model? Because I think that's important too, because a carnivore and keto people, they'll say, um, well, you know, not everybody has to eat this way, but if you have uh, autoimmune disease, you should. You know, and, and that's I, ridiculous. I, I'm not, You'll trigger it that way. <laughs> I'm not joking. That is like I've heard that so so many times, and so I just want to, while we're uh, kind of uh, approaching all these things, I think that might be good to talk about. Let me get your cortisol yeah. article up here. So do you? Um, it's actually a follow up on another article by another group, and they they haven't quoted each other, which to me is usually a corroboration that the idea is true. Um, you know, at least on the right path. And uh, I posted an article maybe back in 2015 on the forum, and it showed that during stress, basically, the, the, there are these cellular fragments that increase, um, the, their number increases in the bloodstream. And for a long time, medicine thought that, you know, it's just a, it, it, it's just a harmless debris, right? I mean, that's what cortisol does. It shreds your muscle tissues, your skin, connective tissue, because it's used to, as a fuel, you know, to, to, to generate glucose in the, in, in, in the liver through the process of gluconeogenesis. So now, whether you like gluconeogenesis or not, the medicine said, okay, well, I mean, that's, that's the price you pay when cortisol is high to feed you. You're going to have some, de- some debris in your bloodstream, right? As it turns out, that debris itself is not, is not benign at all. Mm-hmm. It's actually a stress signal, a very potent one, and it was indistinguishable in, in, in terms of uh, ability to activate the HPA axis, it was indistinguishable than the, the stress peptide uh, released by the brain called CRH, corticotropin-releasing hormone. And it was the fragments of mitochondria and other cellular, uh, other cellular fragments that were actually shown to be able to, uh, to bind and activate specific receptors. So they were acting exactly like hormones. And as a result, the body interpreted, um, uh, I forget the exact quote, but something along the lines of that, if if the if the level of these debris in your blood exceed a certain level, the body behaves as identically as if you are if as if you have a severe viral infection. Mm-hmm. So it triggers the same inflammatory uh, uh, pathways. The, it increases nitric oxide because that's what the body increases trying to get rid of the pathogen, bacteria or virus. It doesn't matter. It increases serotonin, right? So all of these things because. Cellular debris in the bloodstream is interpreted as a stress signal, as it should. I mean, now when we think about it, isn't that doesn't it make perfect sense? That's the signal for the entire body that's, that that some part of you is disintegrating. Now, what also happens as a result is that the way these cellular debris debris are being cleared up is by forming antibodies for them, right? And then on tests, it it looks as if uh, your body is attacking a specific gland or tissue, while in reality it's only trying to get rid of whatever fragments of that you know gland or tissue are already in the bloodstream so uh and cortisol does that right so so stress by through cortisol is capable of increasing the levels of debris in the bloodstream now this new study found that actually you can even find an entire uh, entire intact mitochondria in the blood Mm -hmm. i mean many of them right so they're not just fragments and the mitochondria itself are capable of triggering the entire inflammatory cascade which we which we know PUFA is also capable of, of, of triggering. So they increased all of the uh, pro-inflammatory interleukins, I think one, six, um, and twelve. And they also they also increased the activity of the enzymes cyclooxygenase and lipoxygenase, which produced the uh, prostaglandins and leukotrienes from, of course, arachidonic acid, another PUFA, right? So that's and, and again, 
mitochondria has no place in the blood unless a cell has disintegrated. The, the two things that can dis disintegrate a cell, actually three in the body, is a viral attack, a bacterial attack, or cortisol. So when you're withholding carbs, what you're doing is uh, increasing systemically the levels of cortisol. And not only that, but like I said, the body adapts. It actually upregulates the expression of the enzyme 11-beta-HSD1, which, which uh, synthesizes the active version, the cortisol, and it also decreases the expression of 11-beta-HSD2, which deactivates cortisol. So you're setting yourself up for, for chronic hypercortisolemia. Now, if that wasn't bad enough, so cortisol basically by, by going low-carb, you'll end up recreating the stress response. But cortisol itself is also immunosuppressing, right? So you will actually invite these opportunistic viruses and bacteria. And on top of that, some of them are part of your DNA. They're the retroviruses. Those get activated by estrogen and cortisol. So by going low carb, you will not only be recreating the stress response, you'll be inviting all of these pathogens that are now doctors are claiming are the very cause of autoimmune disease. Now, if you go to look at Crohn's disease, now they're saying it's caused by a specific type of um, um, micro, I think it's called mycobacterium paratuberculosis. Now, it's already known to be caused by this bacteria in animals. Now they're like still wishy-washy, like, mm, should, should we admit it's already, it's already it's also causing this in humans or not? Anyways, it's going that way. Uh, multiple sclerosis, it's thought to be caused by either the JC virus or the Epstein-Barr virus. Um, several blood cancers are thought to be caused by these viruses, right? So even if you even if you believe in the official, I still think the virus is just a they're just a bystander. It's a sign that you're being under stress, right? The primary cause would be cortisol and these cellular debris. But even if you believe in the official version of what's causing potentially autoimmune conditions, you have every reason not to go low carb because it's the increasing cortisol that may initially make you feel better because it's lowering systemic inflammation. But it's setting you up for so much more worse in the long run because it will shred, start shredding tissue, because it will start triggering these autoimmune reactions, because it will start activating these retroviruses, especially things like HIV, which I think Ray talks in one of his uh, articles that the hepatitis viruses are most certainly endogenous. Uh, they're just triggered by stress, right? The hepatitis A, B, and C. And I think there's a Duisburg's work showed that about 0.5% of the population natively, like endogenously, already has the uh, has the antibodies for, for HIV. So all of this is known to happen as a result of stress. HIV is known to progress into AIDS as a result of endotoxin and or stress. So every time you expose yourself to low carb and, and you're and you're increasing your cortisol, you're you're doing like a like a double damage, right? I mean it's it's like it's like you're you're suppressing your immune system, which prevents them from dealing with these pathogens, um, and you're also causing the the stress response independently because of because of the breakdown of tissues. Uh, Ray and I talked about an interesting story about Fort Detrick and the creation yeah. of HIV, but we won't get into that. <laughs> um, so, so, do I have this right? The like a cell can kill itself by apoptosis, and that wouldn't necessarily be stressful. But uh, like the inappropriate um, destruction of a cell and it releasing its debris into the, exactly. the blood exactly. and something that could uh, or, or basically everything associated with stress causes the um, influx of calcium into cells. And then I have a paper brought up here 
but uh, it's by Fujita, 1991, and he says all cell death is characterized by an increase like of intracellular yeah. calcium, and then that turns yeah, on exactly. nitric oxide. And, and and so again, this is kind of uh, well something we talk about a lot here is calcium and how dietary calcium restrains the activation of the parathyroid hormone and other hormones that cause the influx of calcium into cells. So the proper apoptosis actually depends almost entirely on intracellular pH. So anytime the, the basically, so the cell cannot commit apoptosis if the pH, intracellular pH is above a certain level. In other words, in this the exact opposite of what currently cancer, uh, the, the oncology department claims. So uh, not department, but industry. So the, your cell becomes cancerous if it becomes too alkaline. This is like, it doesn't require any genes. It's every cell in the body is capable of doing that. If you, if basic, and the, re, the reason this happens usually is because something is increasing the, the activity of the enzyme um, carbonic anhydrase. And, and another reason is if the cell is overproducing lactic acid, because the cell considers that lactic acid as a toxin, it's pumping it out of itself which increases, which d- drops the extracellular pH, so your blood is more acidic, but the cells itself that are under stress are alkaline. So while they're in that state, these states, these cells are indistinguishable from cancer cells, even metabolically, and now this brings us to the study which we thought we're not going to discuss, but I guess I have to say it. Now, the one study that I posted uh, maybe two, three days ago showed that lactate is an oncometabolite. Lactate acid itself, without any other interference from anywhere, is capable of activating all of the known major oncogenes, suppressing all of the known tumor suppressor um, genes, right? And in general, increasing cell proliferation and dedifferentiation. So that's all that's required. Systemic acidosis um, or systemic intracellular alkalinity is all that is required for cancer to develop. There's no, there's no mystery to it. All the mutations, all of the derangements that are known um, to happen in advanced stages of cancer, all of these are after the fact. It's really the metabolic derangement of the cell that is the original signal. So apoptosis, you have you want your cells that are becoming abnormal and, and are trying to, to ruin the party, so to speak. If you want them to be capable of recognizing how abnormal they are and getting rid of themselves, themselves, make sure you drop the intracellular pH and you know, that happens by raising carbon dioxide production, mainly, mainly. that uh, Calcium can also do it because it increases metabolism, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think magnesium is also known to do it because it increases the activity of uh, pyruvate dehydrogenase, which is the usually the, the rate-limiting factor for synthesis, for entry of the Krebs cycle and consequently synthesis of carbon dioxide. Um, carbon, uh, the carbonic anhydrase inhibitor acetazolamide is known in vitro at this point at least to have effect over every against every cancer type uh, that has been tried so far and they're saying we don't know why but that's one explanation it rapidly drops the intracellular pH and that's a signal for an abnormal cell to kill itself regular one will happily proceed and continue to produce carbon dioxide and you know and, and maintain itself and its apparatus but you know if the cell cannot produce carbon dioxide the next step is dismantling the mitochondrial um, the oxidative phosphorylation apparatus, and then and then that's it. After that, from from that to cancer is just only one step. Uh, Aqua Vitae actually uh, brought up a question that I was just about to uh, riff on. Uh, he says, or they say, 
if only there was a fuel source that did not make lactic acid when it was metabolized. And so this is a common argument that the use of free fatty acids because it bypasses glycolysis will lead to less lactic acid. But I don't think, uh, correct me if I'm it wrong. It does not. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. It interferes because it interferes with the, ox with the oxidation of glucose. Basically, all of that glucose will be wasted. Now, yes, if you if you ingest carbs, some of some of that will get converted to lactate, but it only only if you're in a in a reduced state, right? So it's the redox status that controls it all. And unfortunately, when you're oxidizing fats, almost any glucose that you're intaking will get converted to lactic acid because it cannot get metabolized. So because of the Randall cycle, and because the the redox state will be will be moved towards reduction. The Randall cycle. I think I sent you that link. It's on Wikipedia. It lowers the NAD to the NADH ratio. In other words, there'll be more. There will be an accumulation of NADH. And whenever that happens, the body needs an emergency oxidant, and it will use pyruvate, which is coming from glucose. So if you if you if you're only eating fat and you know metabolizing fat and you're relying on on ketosis. You still have glucose in your body. I mean, actually, that's when it, when when the river uh, when the liver starts pumping out a lot of glucose through gluconeogenesis because of the cortisol and all the amino acids flooding the liver. The liver has to convert it to something. It doesn't like them floating in the bloodstream, so it will convert almost all of them to glucose, and all of that glucose will be wasted and get turned into lactate. I, I was going to say that was the main thing. They were not considering that their body is still making the glucose, and then exactly. the decrease in carbon dioxide and, and the basically creating the Warburg effect because there's yeah. oxygen around. Uh, so, but, but the, because of the carbon dioxide, they're just going to convert it into lactic acid. And if I, I, just a few days ago, I did like Reddit ketosis, uh, uh, lactic acid, and you can just find many threads talking about people that are, feel increasingly sore muscles, uh, upon starting, uh, ketosis. Uh, and that's not, incontrovertible proof or anything uh but i did put up um uh an article about brain uh doubling the amount of lactic acid in the in the brain uh ketosis and and things so have you ever seen and, uh for, for the people that have because I, I always hear an example well but ketosis is shown to work for epilepsy yeah but only if it's done with short-chain fatty acids and or saturated fats long-chain saturated fats it does not work if you ingest corn oil Try to go on ketosis on Cornell, and you'll see how you'll get much worse seizures than before. This was tried and several times, and there's a reason why they don't use it anymore in the clinic. So, so this whole thing about ketosis may very well turn out to be because of the anti-stress pro-GABA effects of saturated fat and some of the short-chain fatty acids. That's something I've thought about of, of whether like ketogenic people that intake exogenous um, ketones do better than people that are just kind of all, all natural. And because if they were to get a, a, a source of acetoacetate, they would be um, kind of maybe possibly mitigating some of the some of the effects of the ketone body ratio and the beta hydroxybutyrate and uh, acetoacetate. Right. Uh, but also some of the short chain fatty acids, uh, there's a drug called uh, uh, valproic acid. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's sold as, usually as a sodium salt. Mm -hmm. And I think it's basically closely related to valeric acid. So these are short chain fatty acids and they're known to be basically potent GABA agonists. So these anti-epileptic effects that are that people are seeing from the uh, from the from the keto diets, they only first of all I want to emphasize they only occur if you're using short chain fatty acids, which are the saturated ones, and or long chain saturated fatty uh, fatty acids. They do not occur if you ingest corn oil, canola oil, or any of the other vegetable oils that are high on linoleic acid. So there is a so it's not really the ketosis here that's 
it suggests that it's not the ketosis that's the benefit. It's something about the fat itself, the type of fat that you're using. Sweet. Okay, let's take a mini break here. Uh, subscribe if you're new here. Uh, appreciate that. Uh, like I've said many times, I strongly believe that this channel has hit some keywords that uh, cause it to be like shadow banned <laughs> in some capacity. So probably yeah. uh, you probably need to subscribe to get the content here. Uh, please like the stream. That really helps out. Uh, and then leave a comment and you'll be entered into the Tokovit ID Labs uh, weekly giveaway. Um, and we'll talk about that in a second. IDLabsDC.com, Georgie's Boutique Supplement Company. Go check that out. Follow Georgie on Twitter uh, at at hateit. Uh, um, I do coaching, and you can check that out at dannyroddy.com slash resources. This is the only way I fund all of this, you know, uh, and I, I've been doing this for a long time, and there are plenty of opportunities to uh, – do lots of different things to make lots of different revenue, you know, and I'm not saying that people that do that, uh, I'm not saying any, anything about that, but th this is the way I feel like is um, kind of allows me to keep objecti objectivity is just pa people paying me for my time and coaching, you know, and so that that's how I uh, like to earn a living. And you can find that at dannyradio.com slash resources. And you can follow me at Twitter at Danny Roddy, and I have an Instagram. Uh, Georgie, anything else? Uh, I just actually, I was just looking at the the Valproic acid. Yeah. I mean, I just wanted to confirm what I said and say it's. I was right this time, hundred <laughs> percent. So Valproic acid, which is one of the most established drugs for treating epilepsy, um, and they're saying that proposed mechanism of action is probably GABA, increasing the GABA levels. It's synthesized from valeric acid, which is another name for pentanoic acid. So it's a short chain fatty acid. Butanoic acid, butyric acid, also known as butyric acid, is another one that's known to increase GABA levels or at least act as a GABA agonist. Uh, it's also histone deacetylase inhibitor, uh, the, the latter one, the butyric one. That's why it's uh, it's so useful for cancer. So so really, the evidence that I've seen so far suggests that the benefits of ketosis are not because of the ketosis as when it comes to epilepsy. It's because of the signaling effects and the fact that these are Short-chain saturated fatty acids or long-chain saturated fatty acids. I've, the studies that I've seen with <laughs> with vegetable oils high on PUFA, they do not produce good results. They actually they, they can cause even death. Well, speaking of, did you want to talk about the the thing that you had posted, um, like America's favorite oil? Oh, yeah, that's a great one. Yeah. So uh, that was actually pretty <laughs> – it, it, it was a pretty brave statement, um, I thought, because it's coming out of – I forgot which university. Some university did the study, and they actually showed that soy oil, which at this point is the uh, you know the favorite oil in America for pretty much any commercially cooked food, directly causes diabetes and obesity. Um, and uh, they actually, on top of that, they found out that it is linoleic acid that's causing this. Um, so I, I don't know how you can get it any 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 clearer than that. The only criticism that I've heard so far, uh, based on when I posted this, I mean, because whenever I post something on my blog, it shows up on Twitter. The only criticism that I heard so far is that yeah, it's in mice and they have a different metabolism for the, for like for the PUFAs. Um, and I I looked into that, and it looks like um, they the mice only have a different metabolism for the very long chain fats, uh, basically uh, uh, chain uh, chain length of twenty or more. That's not linoleic acid. So we're, we're talking about a you know chain of 18. So so um, to me, that study still stands. I've emailed the authors. Let's see if they respond or not. Uh, but basically, if you look at this, the statements of those researchers, they said 
if I were you, I mean, because the, uh, the interviewer said, so what is the takeaway from the study? And they said, too early to say, but uh, if you ask us, we will we will do everything possible to avoid soy oil. Um, and But I would, I would go a step further. If they prove that it's the little lake acid that's causing this, then you should be avoiding any oil that contains it in large amounts. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, yeah, I have the quote here, avoiding conventional soybean oil as much as possible. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And, uh, but here's the thing: What's conventional soybean oil? Like, oh yeah, they also tried a high oil lake version, but they also basically they it, it, that also had slightly less worse, right? So it's less bad, but still, it, it it coconut oil did the best, and I think that's because that that link is also there in that post because mm-hmm. they also uh, and now um, I don't know if I took that quote, I don't know, but basically like that's that uh, in the second study where they tested coconut oil. That guy, that same guy who said avoid uh, uh, conventional soybean oil as much as possible, he also said he's already switched to using <laughs> coconut oil for most of his cooking. So he didn't say do it, but that that's what he's doing. Uh, I loved this. Uh, have you seen the? It's called Omega Six Apocalypse by Chris A. Knob. It was kind of floating around maybe a few months ago. Did you happen to watch it? It's like a YouTube video. Uh, was it like a YouTube video? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I think it was like phenomenally done. And it's nothing you haven't heard before, but I just thought it was like a simple uh, presentation. Um, but he, uh, I, I, oh, oh, I, sorry, I played the sound. Anyways, if you type in Chris Knob and Danny Roddy in Twitter, I, I put like I did like a super cut of uh, the whole presentation talking about. He he says there's no there's been no dietary change that's been as great as the uh, introduction of the vegetable and seed oils. It's like uh, yep. just astronomical. Like there's th- that paper I'm sure we've talked about from 1909 to 1999 that soybean oil has increased a thousand percent. And uh, and then he goes into just mechanisms as well. And he and he just says the same thing that Ray's been saying for years. You know the the cytochrome C oxidase and the inhibition of mitochondrial respiration, lipid oh, yeah. peroxidation. Um, did I say cardiolipin already? Like it's just it's just well done, and he he's saying it in a very non technical way. And I don't think people appreciate how. Uh, again, I don't know if anybody knows the optimal amount of polyunsaturated fats in the diet or anything, but how low it is, you know, like how low it might be, maybe you know, under four or around two grams. It's like so ridiculously difficult uh, to do for a lot of people. And I'll regularly get people will send me what they're eating and it will be like 20, 30, 40 grams of the polyunsaturated fats per day. Uh, and just being in Asia, you, you start to appreciate like how every single food is fried, uh, on the street food and things. And in Japan, uh, when I would go out at night, there'd be these long lines to seven elevens of kids waiting to get like their fried, uh, food. Uh, and it's just wow. it's just like crazy to to think about. So, and again, those that type of fat you've been eating being stored in your body fat, and uh, that being kind of a vicious cycle and being difficult to get out of as well. Yeah, because it's preferentially stored. Saturated fat gets preferentially oxidized. So, and then conversely, when you actually so um, when you actually uh, um, when you're doing lipolysis, so when you're eating fat. Whatever the composition of it is, like the saturated one tends to get oxidized first, and then the PUFA gets stored, right? So then when you're doing lipolysis, for most people, that means you're bathing mostly in PUFA. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like it's, so you have to eat like saturated fat for a while, primarily because it's so easily oxidized preferentially in order to change the composition of the, of the fatty tissue. Mm-hmm. But there's some human studies that show that if you rub vitamin E, on your like on on the areas that have that have a lot of fat 
or you rub stearic acid, which is a 18 carbon uh, chain long uh, fatty acid, the saturated equivalent of linoleic acid, you can actually change the composition of the fatty tissue much faster. Um, and you can prevent a lot of the bad effects of lipolysis. Sweet. And speaking of vitamin E, uh, the winner from the ID Labs giveaway, and, and this is all because of Georgie being so gracious to ship out and, and send people free vitamin E. And thank you for that, Georgie, is um, Sofronios. And so you left a very nice comment. And so uh, please email me at danny at dannyroddy.com. And we'll get you set up with uh, Idea Labs uh, Tokovit. Is that on your main page, Georgie? Yeah. yeah oh, yeah, yeah, here it is. Okay. I won't click. I know that goes um, to the form. Okay. Uh, hour 20. Uh, I know it's late there. Very uh, Not very early, but early in the morning for me. Um, do you want to get to some Super Chats? Super Chats? Sure. Okay, let's do that. Let me switch here. How is everybody in the chat doing? I see a, a spirited debate going on so for some <laughs> carnivore advocates. Um, I said in the video that I made that I think an equal amount of people are not going to be carnivore uh, in uh, because it, it certainly fits a fad, you know, like, I don't know if you're paying attention, but like Joe Rogan talked about the carnivore diet. Then Jordan Peterson was on the carnivore diet. So it's just kind of really taken YouTube by storm. Uh, and then all these people are... Oh, one, one thing I wanted to mention about the carnivore diets. Yeah. Keep in mind, because they, they draw comparisons to try to explain it evolutionary as well. Yeah. Keep in mind that if you're eating freshly killed meat, it has a very high content of glycogen and vitamin C. So so even though it may sound like eating low-carb low diet, right, you're actually ingesting a significant amount of carbs. Mm -hmm. um, and it's only the aged meats that are starting to decay and then the carbs have already been processed by bacteria and turned into lactic acid. Those are the ones that basically like we're eating nowadays, but really parallels should not be drawn between us and traditional cultures that are eating mostly meat because those people, they don't really store the meat. They kill the animal, they eat it within like a, a day or two. So if you're doing that, you're actually ingesting a significant amount of glycogen with the carbs, uh, I'm sorry, with the with the protein to the, to the, to the, to the uh, tune of potentially you know, at least one to one ratio. So if you're eating like a good steak, that's like, I don't know, half a pound, uh, you're probably getting like, uh, you know, maybe a few hundred grams of carbs as well, if that's a fresh steak. So to me, the argument about carnivore being low carb and look at how good it was for our ancestors, uh, it cannot be compared with a current carnivore diet because we're mostly eating meat that's, that's being uh, stored for several months. Um, and that's basically you're eating almost pure protein, endotoxin and lactic acid. And if people think we should mimic the uh, diets of our ancestors, maybe they should live like them too. <laughs> <laughs> that, yeah, sure. Exactly. So just the mimicking the diet, you know, it's just like not enough, but uh, go hunt for like, for, 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 for deer in the woods and live like a, like a wild man. And then maybe it's good for you. And of course that's semi unjust because it's basically impossible. Like I know I've uh, said this story before, but I had like an EMF, uh, like a $200, very sensitive EMF reader. And in, in Mexico, I, I was in a giant field, no houses around anywhere. And it was reading almost to the, the top measure. I forget the unit. It might've been like over 3.0, uh, volts per meter, which was like, it's like very high. And, yeah. uh, there were no houses anywhere around me. I was in an empty field and it was from the cell towers that were like almost, exactly. almost I was going to say I, cell towers. Yeah, I almost couldn't even see them how far they were. And so it's just like, uh, 
You're, you're, or long distance power lines. Like that's the only two. And some of them are underground. Well, this so you don't even know about. You're those. probably right. That, that would be not RF though, right? The radio frequency. Oh yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but it's just like you're being bombarded with stuff that you never asked for. You know, it's not. It's not even up for debate whether you want to be exposed to the RF. And and I just saw an ad on 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 TV in the United States. That T-Mobile apparently already has like a five G network. Well. Uh, and I'm and I'm gonna start to look. Um, uh, there's these websites that are propping up that are basically because they don't like 5G, right? I, you saw the post that I said that they basically said we don't know if 5G is safe at all. Mm-hmm. So some European states have banned it, at least the deployment of it. But long story short, I'm pretty sure that you know DC is probably gonna be spearheading the 5G effort. So I'm starting to look for ways to identify where like you know most of the toxic exposure would be well 5g is in bangkok <laughs> it is. it's it's in a lot of the routers and so we won't get wow. to go get into why i'm still here but like it, it is uh i'm sure it's super saturated where i am at the moment you know like i i always go in and i plug in ethernet and i go to the admin and, and the password and i turn off the, right. the radios but it doesn't matter because all my neighbors and things have them um yeah. But anyways, that I thought 5G was coming and when I lived in Mexico, we like the whole street got new internet service and all the the uh, routers were 5G. And yeah. I was like, "What? Wait, it's coming. It's like here uh, already." And then that's well, the same it's, is true for here. I mean, the technology is here, but you have to it's it's a matter of deployment. Because of the higher frequency, you'll need to to place a lot more antennas per like. So let's say you you'll need basically an antenna per block, uh-huh. uh, if, if not if not even more dense than that, right? So now they're starting to come up with ways to uh, put these on like uh, street light poles. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the only reason they haven't done it yet because that provides uh, almost like a perfect, uh, you know, deployment uh, uh, framework, right? So they're afraid people will steal them because mm-hmm. they're basically they will be exposed. And it, it will be expensive equipment. You'll basically have like a like a pretty nice router <laughs> with some with some nice parts in it. So they haven't figured out that's the only reason why it hasn't been deployed. But so yeah, five G's technology is here, but it hasn't been deployed yet because the infrastructure you require is starting to deploy a lot more of these antennas. Mm-hmm. And that's what's gonna take time, time and money. Um, and some some states are blocking it. I mean, like some European some European states, especially Switzerland, has voted against it. They don't like it. Awesome. Okay, uh, this first super chat is actually from Casper. Uh, like two week, uh, uh, last time we did this, but he says uh, both Danny, uh, both Danny, and both you guys, uh, Danny and Georgie, have you have you gone through very bad health? Did you experience authoritative behavior in that time? Oh my goodness, <laughs> that's the whole. That's the, the most of the reason I'm here. I mean, I experienced such bad health during the 2009-2011 period that. Um, I mean, since then, I've gave up completely on medicine, not because they were helpless, but because I experienced firsthand just how easily they would lie in your face and how how corrupt the profession has become to the point of all they want to do from you is label you, throw you into the system, and you follow rules, and you consume as many drugs as possible, do as many procedures as possible, and not ask, I mean, ask as few questions as possible, mm-hmm. um, even though... I never got an official diagnosis from any of these doctors. So, uh, so yeah, I mean, I've experienced some serious health issues. Knock on wood, I think they're gone, right? Um, and uh, right now, the only time I'll consider going to the doctor is if, you know, God forbid I get into an accident. I need, an, I need antibiotics that I don't have myself already. 
um, or there is some kind of a requirement that I can't go around. I mean, basically, I'm an immigrant in the United States, and you know, some of these immigrational procedures require you going to the doctor and getting examined. You know, they don't want to. They don't want psychos coming into the country. And I said, too late, already here. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, on my front, I think I've mentioned this in my interview with uh, uh, Matt Blackburn, but um, I, I viewed myself as like a, a terror, like somebody that only wanted to argue, impose my point of view on on people, you know? And, and so when Ray started talking about... Um, authoritarianism i was like holy shit that's like me in a nutshell (laughs) and so i I think not only becoming aware of of those things uh but then realizing that your your physiology is involved in kind of like orienting you to that type of behavior and then also seeing it in other people you know like especially if you're with somebody and they haven't eaten for a long time and they get like more aggressive and more aggressive as time goes on it's just like it's very noticeable and yeah. so, um, yeah, I mean, Ray, Ray is the guy that opened my mind to, to that, uh, the authoritarian persona and, and the serotonin connection and things. And so again, I'm not immune to not being that way, but I, I think, uh, it's easier for me to, um, maintain an even keel and not be so, um, stupid. That's actually one of the things that still gives me hopes for humanity in general is that I was I was also in a I mean, like I said I was in a pretty bad shape and I was probably in a very authoritarian state myself and the fact that I was capable of still keeping an open mind and being open to raise ideas right and investigating and learning for myself shows me that even if you're in a very compromised health or mind wise right um, there's something there's some part of you I guess at some point you may lose it right if you become a completely complete psychopath. But to the very end, there seems to be this ability of humans to to incorporate new ideas uh, into their mindset. And as long for as long as that's true, I think there's still hope for the world. You know, it's about if we become completely roboticized and we only follow rules. If we get to that point, then uh, I don't know. <laughs> There's not much hope after that. I'm trying to find it, but I think Roger said that. Oh, here it is. Uh, let me switch views real fast. He said on becoming a person, he said, one of the most revolutionary concepts to grow out of our clinical experience is that growing recognition that the innermost core of man's nature, dot, 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 the base of his animal nature is positive in nature, is basically socialized, forward moving, rational and realistic. And then he has other quotes where he says that. Say it again. It's removing rational oh, uh, and, and realistic. Uh, uh, the base of his animal nature is positive in nature, is basically socialized, forward moving rational and realistic and so and he has another court where he says that can be buried upon layer of layer of like encrusted uh defense mechanisms and culture and things like that but i but i think you're right because i i often think like how how, why was i receptive to raise uh stuff when i when i was like so horrendously sick and it was really based on experience and, and being so cold all the time and that being like this terrible symptom that nobody was talking about that I, I felt like uh, Matt Stone, who was one of the people that introduced me to Ray, was really one of the only people talking about it. So, Yeah, I think I think if, if, if something threatens you in terms of, as a concept, you're very likely tired and or somehow low on energy. I've noticed that the only time I start getting feeling defensive about some ideas, even if somebody – it's like right now when I feel I'm fine – I would gladly listen to somebody who has something to say about Pufu being good for you <laughs> right? and like proposing studies and whatnot. It would actually entertain me 
And I would try to see this person's point. If I'm tired, cranky, feeling sick or whatnot, that would not fly well. Yeah. I mean, like that at that point, I'm actually becoming a Pitharian authoritarian. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, I think the just like Ray said, like the basis of human nature of human consciousness is empathy. So if you start feeling like you're starting to lose some of your empathy, that's the first signal that energetic reserves are um, are going down. Like you you need you need to restore them. Um, if you start feeling like oh these people deserve their fate. Or like, oh, you know, like it's, they, they were bad people. They, they, that's what should have, that's, whenever you start feeling like that towards your fellow people, um, chances are you're, you, you need your sugary drink. I love it. Okay, Kirk333 uh, for $2. Thank you so much, Kirk. Uh, he says, is extremistane in three milligram dose safe for long-term use? Uh, Examistane in three milligram grams? Yeah. In three milligrams? Yeah, and just to say, we're not giving medical advice here. Yeah, exactly. No, uh, I can only so I will. I can only quote the studies that I've seen. Right. That's so. According to the studies that I've seen, taking examistane in dosages higher than ten milligrams daily does not provide more benefit in terms of lowering estrogen. So the the clinically used dosage is usually twenty five milligrams a day, mm-hmm. but examistane has a very long half life, about forty eight hours. So you don't need to take it every day. On top of that, anything more than 10 milligrams is already not providing you with any benefit. Um, fortunately, the, the studies that I've seen, human and animal, have shown that using 10 milligrams or less daily doesn't really produce much of side effects. I mean, they looked at liver function, kidney function, hematology, um, uh, basically like they, they did complete blood count. So other than increasing testosterone, um, and lowering estrogen, the 10 milligrams or lower seemed to be pretty safe. I emphasize seemed because the studies last for, lasted for only two months, uh, for only a few months. Now there are long-term studies with females taking examistate for breast cancer, and then at the very high dosage of about 25 milligrams daily, um, there seems to be some concern about um, potential um, Im- impediment of, of uh, liver function. But uh, it only happened in about 10% of the women. And keep in mind, these women are with breast cancer. The people with cancer typically already have liver problems. So, so the study didn't say whether these women had problems before or not. All it said that at the conclusion of the study, when they were drawing the, the blood, um, about 10% had elevated ALT. And it was only one of the three enzymes tested that it was elevated. So whether 3 milligrams is safe or not, I'm legally not allowed to say. All I can say is that it should be much safer than the 10 milligrams for which that is the maximum benefit you can get. And so far, there's nothing published in terms of this dosage causing any kind of side effects. So you're taking about one third of that. So it should be even safer. Whether it's completely safe, we don't know. The absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. So think for yourself. I know there is a way to mitigate these risks even more if you're combining with a little bit of pregnenolone. Because examistane in structure is very similar to the uh, uh, steroid boldenone, and most uh, most uh, endpoint steroids tend to be suppressive uh, of the precursor of the synthesis of the precursor steroids. So, um, and many of the many of the mental side effects of steroid abuse have shown to be due to the fact that these androgenic steroids inhibit the production of allopregnanolone. And in the brain, also progesterone and pregnenolone. So taking a little bit of pregnenolone, 5 to 10 milligrams daily, uh, may be able to mitigate these risks even more. Um, 
I hope that answers it. I would personally take it. Somebody asked me, would you take three, three milligrams of examestane daily indefinitely? I would say yes, and but I would also add five to ten milligrams of pregnenolone on top of that. I just realized our timer thing for the chat doesn't work. Um, very sad. Why do, okay, it doesn't matter. Why do you need it? Just something I was working on. <laughs> okay, Kirk has another question. Uh, thank you for that, Georgie, uh, and thank you, Kirk. He says this one's for five dollars. Thank you, Kirk. He says, "Is wheat and gluten bad for everyone? Can some people digest it, or should everyone avoid?" Thank you. Um, I don't. I don't think the problem is with the digestibility. It's uh, how uh, well functioning is your gut barrier, that gut junction. Uh, that's basically keeping the food and most of its components, at least the undigested or the allergenic ones like gluten, uh, within the GI system. Once it gets into your bloodstream, almost everything becomes a very potent and dangerous allergen. And gluten itself is known to cause the appearance of antibodies for, for like specific organs and tissues as if the body is basically developing an autoimmune reaction. So if you're gluten sensitive and you're eating a lot of gluten, you can actually test, you can test posit- positive on some of the blood tests for Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis. Um, so it can cause these reactions. I don't know if it's it's uh, if it's dangerous for uh, the same way for everybody. I know that people with compromised gut barrier, especially people like uh, which is mostly controlled by the way by estrogen. Um, so if you take if you're drinking alcohol, which is typically the uh, agent most commonly involved in compromised gut barriers, um, eating a lot of wheat and or gluten uh, will probably not sit well with you. Um, if estrogen is kept under control and the gut barrier is is well functioning, then it's probably not as dangerous. But even even in very healthy people, um, some gluten get tends to get into the blood, and studies have shown that even in 20 year olds, uh, when they eat like a heavy uh, wheat based meal afterwards, uh, they have elevated white blood cell count um, and some of the inflammatory interleukins. So even for them, it's it's it seems like the body doesn't like it very much. Thank you for that, and thank you, Kirk. Um prehensile penis for $2 uh, says, what are, <laughs> I don't even know what that means. Uh, what are some PD things to do to fix back pain? Um, you remember I, I posted a study about two months ago. Pregnenolone is now considered by the military, U.S. military, as a tremendous, as a drug with tremendous potential for treating low back pain. Uh, and in general, back pain. And now they, they think, uh, Department of Defense thinks that low back pain is simply a sign of endotoxemia. Um, so they show demonstrated in a study funded by the by Department of Defense that pregnenolone is a potent inhibitor of TLR4 and TLR2 expression. So by taking that or any other chemical that inhibits the activity of this of this uh, receptor um, or inhibits the synthesis of, of endotoxin or the presence in the blood. Um, you can actually treat low back pain. Um, incidentally, there are studies with the antibiotic minocycline, uh, and it shows that it actually alleviates uh, chronic back pain. Um, of course, it has an antibiotic effect, but it, it's capable of, of doing that even in dosages that are not known to have a bactericidal effect. So 20 to 50 milligrams daily is enough to, to apparently relieve back pain. Um, and the fact that, that it works through the TLR4, in other words, the endotoxin receptor, without killing the bacteria to the level of actually reducing endotoxin, is that it's been shown that minocycline also reduces chronic pain triggered by opioid uh, addiction withdrawal. 
Uh, and opioids now are known to be potent, one of the most potent uh, uh, agonist chemicals of TLR4. So they act almost exactly like endotoxin. So when you're taking opioids, while you're taking them, you feel fine. I mean, you're, you're blissful. There's no pain, right? The moment you stop, the pain is actually upregulated. And these opioids can actually create something called phantom pain. So you're starting to feel pain in various parts of the body, even though they're perfectly well-functioning. The reason is that activation of a TLR4 receptor. Minocycline happens to be a TLR4 antagonist. And also, it can even, in higher dosage, can actually make that receptor start to disintegrate. So minocycline and other TLR4 antagonists like the, the tricyclic antidepressants, the uh, nortriptyline, uh, I think amitriptyline are like the most common ones used. Uh, Benadryl is another one. Uh, Cyproheptin, of course. All of these chemicals uh, that are known to block uh, TLR4 and, uh, I mean, serotonin histamine, they're also involved in, in chronic pain. Um, they also have studies behind them showing that they help for chronic uh, back pain. Um, and, um, and in general, any, really any chronic pain that doesn't seem to be relieved by, by painkillers. So pregnenolone is the first thing I would try. I think the dosage that they used was equivalent to about 100 milligrams daily for a human. Um, and then I don't see a reason why not combine it with Benadryl just to make it even more effective and or cyproheptadine and or minocycline or even all three combined. I, I don't think they interact in a bad way. Uh, to tag along on, on what you said, there was actually a nutritionfacts.org, which is like a vegan channel uh, uh, video on back pain. And I thought it was interesting because they were uh, tying it into higher levels of cholesterol and like uh, basically like atherosclerosis in uh, I'm not, not very good with anatomy, but like the the um, or like the arteries and veins in, in the back and, and things. Right. Um, and and so I interpreted that as hypothyroidism and the high level of cholesterol and, of course, a, a decreased formation of pregnenolone. And sure enough, if you type in hypothyroidism, you'll get back pain. Um, the one thing I would add is that's not a symptom that I've ever chronically dealt with back pain. But I did have a like a wicked case of back pain when I was using too much T4 in relation to T3. And I don't know. I mean, I could hypothesize, but uh, maybe the T4 was making me more uh, hypothyroid or something. But uh, it that that definitely seemed to kind of like initiate it. And so using more T3 uh, solved that. Yeah, actually, higher levels of cholesterol are, are now recognized as potentially a defensive mechanism for elevated endotoxin. Uh, cholesterol, pregnenolone, progesterone, and other pregnanes or, or cholesteins, as they call them. Cholesteins are the cholesterol molecules. There are many of them. It's not just cholesterol. It's just that, that, that the ones that share the same structure. And the pregnanes, pregnanes are actually capable of binding and deactivating endotoxin directly. There is a, there's a post about this on my blog. It was specifically with progesterone, but it actually said that uh, based on the structure, they think that any pregnane would do it. And I know from previous studies that that basically, like, if you go to the doctor and you have high cholesterol, most of the time they will check LDL, right? And they'll say, oh, if, if it's high, then you have, I mean, you're, whatever, you, you, you're at risk for heart disease, right? But we know that it's also a, a sign of hypothyroidism, right? But it's also, if you check HDL, if both are on the high end, that's one of the most reliable um, uh, signs of elevated endotoxin because it's HDL that, that carries endotoxin to the liver for deactivation, and then it's the cholesterol, it's the LDL, which which is the cholesterol is care, the regular cholesterol is carried by the LDL. That is the cholesterol that helps repair some of the inflammatory damage done by endotoxin through the TLR4 receptor. 
So I think if you test that, probably like the it's like the cheap man's endotoxin test will be the testing both cholesterol fractions and see where you stand on those. And if you you know if if both of them are elevated, I think this is a pretty decent indication that you know, the low back pain is caused by uh, by endotoxemia. Great stuff. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you for that question and the $2. Uh, Cardo Chav, a regular. Thank you so much, Cardo Chav, for four ninety nine. They say, hey, guys, have either of you tried making the potato juice protein that Ray has talked about? Yes, I have. Um, and I ha- I found myself that I have to uh, uh, basically like, uh, you know, um, what do you call it? Uh, like put it through this cloth, the cheesecloth several times so that all the starch is gone. Because I did it, the, I did it twice. And then the liquid looked like perfectly transparent. I was like, yes, I nailed it. It's 100% pure potato juice. But then I let it sit for a while and it formed this like thick sediment at the bottom. And then I, I mean, I found out personally that in my case, I had to I had to basically filter it four times before I get it to the level where there is very little noticeable starch. Uh, and I even, I even emailed Ray about it and he said, I would filter it as many times as necessary in order to get rid of the starch because he's like the beauty and the benefit. Like he said, the benefit, the benefit of the of the of the potato protein uh, juice soup is really the fact that it's almost entirely keto acids and carbs, and it has basically no starch in it. So for somebody with a very in a very compromised health state, which is when he usually recommends eating that potato protein soup, you you want as little starch and you know hopefully none if possible. I've never made it before, so I couldn't comment. Uh, but that's very interesting. Thank you. For- it's pretty easy to make. It's just, it's just you have to be careful. I mean, you have to do several filterings depending on the the sieve that you have because uh, it's that that starch. The, the particles are really, really fine. I mean, you're gonna take a lot of filtering be- before you can get to a point where. So the test for me is leaving the liquid um, undisturbed for like 30 minutes. So if there's any starch in it, it tends to within 30 minutes it tends to already cover the bottom. And then anything more than the finger thickness, I think, is, is to me, is unacceptable. I found that it irritated my stomach if you had more than that. Thank you for that. Uh, thanks, Cardo Chaff, uh, and thanks for all the Super Chats. Uh, we got so many like people that do Super Chats every week, so sincerely appreciate it. Uh, this one's from Priya100 for $5, no message. Thank you so much, Priya. Uh, Jerry B oh. for $5. Thanks, Jerry. He says... I'm on prednisone for my active ulcerative colitis flare. It worked right away. Uh, how does prednisone work? Uh, what's the damage if uh, if and what should I do to recover? Uh, depends on the dosage, really. I mean, um, sometimes they will put people on high dosage in order to induce remission very quickly. Um, when it's used for in for periods of like one week to ten days, which is what they normally do for acute, they call it acute acute exacerbation. Then I think it's relatively benign, um, but still, if it's a very high dosage, it may cause it may precipitate something called caused uh, something called adrenal insufficiency. That's pretty nasty because once you stop the prednisone, you feel like absolutely crap. Um, you can even go into a shock actually if if you're not careful about it. Uh, hopefully, you're not that case. Um, if, uh, there are also like people where they, pres- uh, there are cases where they prescribe prednisone orally, uh, in a much smaller dose. It's called the medrol pack. Um, that I think is more benign and it, but it tends to be prescribed on a chronic basis. And then that can also suppress your adrenals. And ultimately really the, the, the damage from cortisol is twofold. One, even though it suppresses inflammation, which is how it really helps the ulcerative colitis, um, it does suppress the inflammation. It allows the lesions to heal. However, suppresses your immune system, 
And just as we discussed earlier, it actually exacerbates the conditions that allow for the for the autoimmune condition to happen to start with, right? It's going to cause that rupturing of cells and leakage of the mitochondria and other cell fragments in the bloodstream. And that will, in the long run, unless you're taking cortisol, you know, throughout this entire time, which is I wouldn't advise because it's going to, you know, shred your muscles, shred your tissue, shred your bones, cause depression, potentially even diabetes and insulin release. All of these are known side effects of cortisol. Type prednisone side effects in Google and you'll get them all, but they're pretty they're pretty well known. I mean, it's premature aging is what I will, I will sum them up as. In fact, Ray has a quote saying that every single sign slash symptom of aging can be produced in an organism regardless of the age if you administer sufficiently high dosage of cortisol for, for sufficiently long. So if it's a high dose, I would only take it for about a week. If it's the lower dose and it's prescribed chronically, I would ask the doctor to taper it off and replace with something safer like uh, pregnenolone or, or progesterone. I don't know if that person who asked the question knows, but pregnenolone was used for autoimmune conditions back in the 40s and 50s. Um, it was most commonly used for rheumatoid arthritis, but it also showed some success for lupus and for psoriasis as well. And I don't know of any study for ulcerative colitis specifically, but since it's already also considered an autoimmune condition, and you know, pregnenolone was thought to work similarly to cortisol, but without the side effects, I would think it would be lovely if, if pregnenolone works because you can take it in any dose you want, and it won't cause any of these issues that, that uh, cortisol causes, even in low doses. Sweet. Uh, thank you so much for that, Jerry. Uh, Pure Therapy for $24.99 with no message. Uh, thank you so much, Pure Therapy, just uh, continually supporting the live stream. So thank you for that. Uh, Ga uh, Gabriel Tarauchi, uh, hopefully I'm not butchering that, $10. Thank you so much, Gabriel. He says, on many ingredients labels, natural flavors is included as in an ingredient. Uh, can you guys discuss uh, what the label covers? Are there any problematic substances classified as natural flavors? Not to my knowledge. Most of these are usually like things like vanilla or like citrus flavor, or like limonene. Um, lavender is potentially a problem, uh, even though it's a natural uh, flavor, depending on exactly what they took from the lavender plant and put it in there. Um, recent studies came out showing that lavender is a strong endocrine disruptor in terms of being a very strong, potent androgen antagonist. Um, it caused uh, basically hermaphroditism in, in fetuses when they were exposed even to very minor concentrations for, for a month or so. Uh, so I would definitely not use lavender pro products on pregnant women. Uh, and it doesn't matter if they're ingested or if they're in soaps. It's very commonly used in soaps, the lavender and, and in shampoos. Um, but most of the others are fine, I think. And the most commonly used ones are usually vanilla and citrus because those happen to be the most popular flavors. Um, I, think, I don't think the natural flavor category allows, at least by law, to include all of the all the dangerous flavors that are that are known and the dangerous colorings like the red, the yellow, the red six or like the yellow four or whatever the FDA de defines. So if it says natural flavors, it's typically benign. Uh, but keep in mind, the problem is that the label is often not required to list things that are that appear in sufficiently small quantities. Um, so I found out that the best approach is to email the vendor, and once you start asking the detail the detailed questions. Usually, they usually respond because they're afraid of being sued. So if you start asking things like, 
does does your category natural flavors include endocrine disruptors and you list some of them like lavender you can say lavender right then they usually pretty pretty open about it and come back and say they they may try to like sugarcoat and say oh yeah it includes a tiny amount right but then you already know um, um, if you rely only on the label of course they're gonna list the minimum that's allowed by law and in many cases like if if it's less than one gram per serving which most of the natural flavors are they usually use in microgram quantities or even lower because it's such a potent flavor um, they're not gonna be listed on the label I mean. So they, they they get covered under the natural the natural flavor label, and again I think most of these are safe. But just to be safe, just to be sure, because I've done it myself, so far the vendors that I've emailed when I started mentioning things like endocrine disruptors, they 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 provided me with a lot of data that was nowhere to be found on their websites. Yeah, being in uh, traveling in, in Thailand, there are like a bunch of really great looking juices that are available, like. Uh, and I've tried some of them, and it took me like a week to figure out that they were like powerful irritants. <laughs> and yeah. so, uh, and, and of course, there's nothing, uh, uh, no red flags on the the labels. It's just like a hundred percent juice. And so, <laughs> it, it it can be a minefield, I think. And I mentioned this in videos, but I think I think when um, when somebody is getting into repeat or or whatever, and they're they're leaning into the foods he's talking about it's like some of the most adulterated foods i feel like for example the fruit juice and and sometimes milk yeah. and stuff and so it can be very very difficult especially if a person has some digestive issue and so i that just speaks to the poor food quality you know that we're we're all um exposed to so um thank you so much gabriel sincerely appreciate that um ellie says and thank you so much, Ellie. Uh, he says, I get a massive headache on one drop methylene blue a day in OJ after about a week of use. I eat it away from cheese liver. Any tips to mitigate that? Um, it may be due to, uh, for some reason, chronically downregulated monoamine oxidase type A function of the enzyme. So in a methylene, blue, methylene blue is known to be an inhibitor as well, but by itself shouldn't be causing this. So you may be doing something else or having this downregulated for a different reason. Typically, people under stress have a chronically downregulated enzyme, monoamine type oxidase type A, so and that results in a buildup of serotonin. I would try to take the methylene blue together with some riboflavin, which is vitamin B2, because that is actually a cofactor for that enzyme that, that degrades serotonin. And, in my, and actually, incidentally, riboflavin is used as a treatment for headaches. Um, and it happens to synergize with methylene blue in terms of an oxidizing agent and being able to shift the redox balance back to back to oxid back to the oxidative side. So no more than 10 to 15 milligrams per dose and per day, um, because just like methylene blue, if you take more riboflavin than that and then get exposed to light, you're basically getting the equivalent of photodynamic therapy, which is its goal is to kill cancer cells by creating a tremendous amount of reactive oxygen species. So if you're taking with methylene blue, try in the afternoon or at the very least, don't get exposed to sunlight for the next few hours. Sweet. Thank you so much, uh, Ellie. Uh, Christopher J for $10, no message. Thank you so much, Christopher. Sincerely appreciate it. John Raven for um, five pounds. Uh, thanks so much, John. He says, uh, let me expand this. Two weeks ago, my uncle was diagnosed with prostate cancer on one side, currently doing radiation, dot, dot, dot. Any tips for him are very welcome. You guys rock. Uh, thanks, John. Um, 
the first step would have been for me, given the prostate cancer, I mean, uh, even now, now for, uh, nowadays, most oncologists will recommend not doing anything. Um, I don't know why the oncologist, oncologist talked him into doing something. So before they do therapy, they try to do a biopsy. And they they create this. They have these aggressiveness scale from one to ten, and typically they they would only push for treatment if the cancer's aggressiveness grade is eight or above. Um, I don't know if that was the case for him. If 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 it was not the case, if this biopsy wasn't done, or if the, it was done and the cancer is below eight, I would actually seriously consider talking to the doctor and saying like we we don't want to do anything we want to do the watchful waiting which in most countries around the world is approved as actually a legitimate not treatment but it's considered perfectly acceptable medically and with about uh, actually with a better outcome long-term outcome than treatment uh, because in a small percentage of cases they're not going to tell you that the cancer comes back much more aggressive um, and at that point they treat it they treat it as a castration resistant prostate cancer uh, and they start administering really toxic chemotherapy drugs which tend to kill the patient from heart failure or kidney failure or both. Um, in, in terms of supportive measures from peatland, I would focus on aspirin and progesterone. That would be my go-to methods for, for this kind of cancer. Um, I would also do some tests for hormones and see how those stand. And vitamin D is invariably low in prostate cancer and it happens to synergize with progesterone uh, because vitamin D is a steroid. I keep repeating that because people most people don't consider it a steroid it's a steroid and it's shown to be capable of augmenting the effects of progesterone and androgens while at the same time reducing the effects of estrogen and cortisol at the receptors and it's estrogen really that at this point is pretty clear that's the actual cause of prostate cancer it's not it's not the androgens i mean i'm hoping that uh i'll have a study at least the report to send you uh from that study that i'm doing with dihydrotestosterone which should con- not convince, but should should irritate his doctor, and 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 make them reconsider the approach because uh, it looks like it will show that dihydrotestosterone is actually therapeutic. Um, so yeah, progesterone and aspirin, uh, and vitamin D if it's low. Yeah, and John, check out Ray's article specifically on prostate cancer, where he echoes a lot of the things George he just said, like thyroid supplementation, complete nutrition, and. Um, yeah, like Georgie said, the vitamin D, I think those would all be really useful. Thank you so much, John. Um, let me switch back views here. Georgie, how are you doing? I'm all right, tired, but okay. still there. <laughs> I'm also tired. We're almost done here. Three more. Um, Kirk is just uh, making it rain. So thank you, Kirk, for another $5. Wow. He says, Ray says events in one's life uh, over the last uh, years affects stress level. How long would one need to change life to permanently lower stress? Um, it's There's something called cell quorum, and basically the cells are, are in communication with each other all the time. Um, uh, I don't know how long cell memory lasts for, um, but there could be pockets of tissue that are still under the stress, like the, the, like the, the stress mentality, so to speak. So for as long as there are these pockets of cells, um, there may be some some like remnants of the of the stress event metabolically, right? Um, so to me, one of the most potent ways to stop that stress response altogether is with an anti-serotonin chemical like cyproheptadine. It actually works great, and I've I've had friends who've been to war and came back with post-traumatic stress disorder and PTSD. Is, uh, like uh, so, basically, the cyproheptadine cured their PTSD for for good. Um, and to me, that's 
that's that's a great example of a long-term, like long-living stress long after the event because they went to war. It's like two years in the past. They're still experiencing the exact same symptoms as if they are to war. Um, they tried thyroid. It helped in the sense of making them less sensitive to new stress, but it did not erase the traumatic memories. And then I remember that my article that the formation of traumatic memories requires serotonin, and it's been shown that in the tissues, especially the brain, where the trauma still persists as a memory, serotonin levels are elevated, or at least the expression of the serotonin receptors is increased. So, which made me think that an anti-serotonin chemical would help, and so far it has. Uh, as far as how long it can continue, I mean, uh, Ray may have said one year, but uh, I posted an article that there are transgenerational effects as well. I don't want to scare you, but these things, you know, can go on for generations. Um, the 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 uh, the descendants of the Holocaust survivors are now known to have 14 times higher risk of cancer, eight times higher risk of diabetes, and I think four times higher risk of cardiovascular disease. That's already three generations after the Holocaust, right? So it can certainly be there. But there, there are ways to stop it, and I think serotonin is a primary uh, purveyor, mediator of that long-term memory, and uh, getting under control is, is very important. Thyroid definitely helps as well. Uh, but serotonin and getting out of that learned helplessness, in many cases, really is learned helplessness, which is localized. It's not necessarily still in your brain, but tissues are alive. And as much as we, we, we are um, wrongly trained to think that our consciousness is in the brain, it's not there. Um, it's everywhere. So if your your arm, for lack of a better example, can still be remembering <laughs> whatever the traumatic experience was, and you can have PTSD on your arm. So getting making sure that every you know that the entire organism is is stress free is important. And in my experience, serotonin is a prime mediator. So taking uh, making it, getting under control is important. So thyroid should help. Progesterone seems to help, uh, but it, in my experience. It really depends. Like for females, progesterone seems to feel to work better for these to to stop the stress response. While for males, pregnenolone seems to work better. But it's only when it comes to to like limiting the effects of a of like a of like a stressful event or or breaking uh, breaking uh, breaking free from the learned helplessness cycle. I don't know why that is so. I think in in females, progesterone tends to favor the allopregnenolone route more. Well, in males, pregnenolone does that. I think in males, progesterone actually tends to uh, go down the, the androgen pathway more. Sweet. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, a couple more. Ricky rocks for $5. Thank you so much, Ricky. Uh, he says, uh, should one not take cordonon if DHES is already high per blood test since it contains DHEA? Yeah, I would actually consider not using cortinone, but uh, either like pure pregnenolone or pure progesterone. Um, and if DHEA-S is high, I would do some additional tests uh, for cortisol, um, total testosterone, and dihydrotestosterone, uh, and also ACTH and see and see what's causing it. Typically, if it's, if it's of an adrenal origin, um, ACTH and or cortisol will also be high. Um, if it's uh, if it's of an extra adrenal origin, if there is a mass somewhere producing androgens, which is possible, but it's very rare, then only DHEAS will be high. Um, and uh, there, uh, there's also a benign condition called congenital adrenal hyperplasia. Uh, these people tend to overproduce DHEA, but their cortisol levels are normal. So it's really it's not dangerous, but uh, it's I think it's important to know where it's coming from um, before supplementation can be done. 
Um, while waiting for the blood test, I think pure progesterone is about as safe as it gets if one wants to supplement with it. Yeah, I mean, and and since I have this article up, it's actually the article that Ray says, increasingly in both sexes, it appears that DHEA may rise in stress as a result of deficiency of thyroid progesterone and pregnenolone. And so yeah. that's the pr- prostate cancer article. Um, switch back here. Uh, okay. Thank you so much, Ricky. Thank you, Georgie. Uh, Kirk has a, a, making it rain again for $2. Thank you, Kirk. He says, what vitamins slash supplements do you take weekly? Weekly? Oh, I take a number of things. I, I take Corinol maybe two or three times a week. Um, I take Oxidel uh, a few times a week. It's I don't think I take anything regular. I used to take niacinamide on a regular basis, but I then I found out that I skipped a few days. I did not feel worse, right? But I skipped a week. And then I started to feel like the high free fatty acids getting elevated because my urine started getting foamy again. That's usually a sign of like elevated free fatty acids. So then I started to jump back on the niacinamide. But again, no more than two, three times weekly. Same with aspirin. So at this point, um, I don't I don't think I'm using anything on a daily basis. Uh, like, you know, is it like remembering to take it on a daily basis? Um, just simply because I don't feel the need to. I mean, there were times when I was using the B-complex, at the very least, niacinamide on a daily basis. I was taking aspirin on a daily basis. But, uh, you know, two years ago, I was taking cortinone or penstron on a daily basis, which is the pregnenol DHA or progesterone DHA. But, you know, but then as soon as my test normalized, uh, I felt like there, was, there wasn't much need to do that. And now, I mean, I, I still need them, but it's based on demand, like like based on an event only and how I feel. I don't, I don't take things just because I feel like I should be doing it every day. For those that don't know, the, the benefits of aspirin for as cancer prevention are actually sufficient. Even if you take it twice a month, a new study came out showing that twice a month is enough. It's not. It's You're not getting the most of the benefit if you take it only twice a month. But twice a month is already having a strong protective effect against the appearance of cancer. Um, and then the most optimal dosage I think they, 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 it was an observational study um, it, it, uh, in contrast to, to an interventional one. It showed that two to three times a week is probably optimal for aspirin, specifically when it comes to protecting, protection against cardiovascular disease and cancer. So I, it sort of coincided with how I felt that I don't need to take it every day, so I don't. Um, and, but you know, if somebody wants to experiment with it, well, somebody wants to specifically use aspirin, to prevent from heart attacks and cancer, two to three times a week is probably you're probably reaching the plateau uh, for prevention. For treatment, is a separate story. Sweet, only two more, and I, I take Sinoplus, Sino, uh, Sinomel, uh, aspirin when I remember, vitamin D, K uh, on my skin, and then uh, progesterone and DHEA when I remember. Um, exactly. So you kind of like me, basically, like if you feel well. Like these things are not really something that's in the back of your mind. I was like, oh my God, I forgot my aspirin. I'm going to die like in the next 10 meters. I think about it more when the environment I am I'm in is so bad. You know, I bet there's like Precisely. a 5G modem close to my head. You know, so yeah. it's like I I I do things uh, pro- prophylactically. Like, I mean, I'm sure it's harming me actively, but j- just, to, just to try to mitigate the bad environment. But yeah, I don't. I don't stick to a schedule. I'm very much like you. I'm. I'm. I'm kind of uh, more free flow these days than. Oh, I need to take this at that time or this time. I used to be like. I want to emphasize. I used to be like that because I felt like I needed it. But lately, I feel like you know, food is enough. You know, I think it comes down to your health improving, 
you're restoring the quorum of calmness, right? Versus being the quorum of stress. And it just takes time to get all of the all of the cells, not under control, because it shouldn't be an, an authoritarian thing, but basically convincing that everything's fine, right? Um, and then, but of course, this balance can be disrupted. 5G, <laughs> I don't know, like, uh, you know, annoying psychopathic boss, you know, <laughs> like we all have our stresses in life that we cannot avoid. So we try to limit their, their, their effect. Well said. Um, okay. Two more Francis bacon cheeseburger for $5. Thank you so much, Francis. They say, uh, sort of weary of antibiotics. I've heard of hair loss as one side effect. Anything I should take with minocycline to avoid bad side effects. Can I answer? Can I, I say if, sure. if the dose is, uh, very low. I don't think there's anything to, no, not anything to worry about, but I think that would be uh, a smarter strategy to mitigate any kind of potential symptoms. And and I, I'm just talking about this because I've used minocycline, doxycycline, and antibiotics extensively, and the lower doses seem to present very few problems, whereas the standard yep. doses present uh, some bigger challenges. For example, when I used a hundred milligrams of, um, minocycline twice a day, I had dys- dyspepsia where it felt like I couldn't yeah. breathe sometimes. And so, but that never happened when I used 25 milligrams twice a day. And so, yeah. um, and then vitamin K of course, and, and, and what's your take on it? Um, I've, I've, so first of all, there are studies that came out that show that, uh, at doses that where, where basically you're not getting like the full antibiotic effect, Specifically, the studies were with doxycycline. 40 milligrams of doxycycline daily had a profound anti-inflammatory effect, which they couldn't explain because they, in their mind, you know, they're not thinking that doxycycline is a quinone. They're not thinking that it inhibits cox and lox and, and nitric oxide, right? But basically, so it, it had a, like a, a gut-modifying effect without wiping it out. It also had a profound anti-inflammatory effect, which I think speaks to the fact that it's still takes care of endotoxin somehow. Because if any, if your endotoxin is high, you cannot c- control, fully control inflammation. It's such a systemic inflammatory mediator that, you know, you, you can take a COX inhibitor as much as you want, right? But if your endotoxin is high, you'll find another pathway. So if the 40 milligrams of doxycycline once a day manage to have such a profound anti-inflammatory effect, I think that's enough. That shows that it's taking care of endotoxin. But at the same time, it's not this really disrupting your... Your, your, your microbiome to the point where, you know, one risk potential with completely wiping out is that fungi may take over. If you have candida, it's an opportunistic pathogen and actually can take over, create problems down the road. So that's really why, like, when people are given antibiotics for longer terms or high doses, they're also given an antifungal after that to sort of, like, take care of any fungal overgrowth. But if you're taking these lower doses, so for monocycling, say 25 milligrams, um, I would probably do it like the 40 to 50 milligrams because that's the studies, human studies that I've seen with doxycycline and tetracycline. And at those dosages, there were no, there were no side effects, like not even, not even like a dyspepsia, not even nausea, which is very common with antibiotics. Um, so I would, I wouldn't fear the antibiotics at these low doses because remember they're quinones. So at the lower doses, all they're doing is stimulating respiration blocking the effects of endotoxin through the TLR4 receptor, right, without disrupting your microbiome too much. So I don't think there's anything to fear when you're when you're capping them at, at, the, at those low doses. At higher doses, yes, there may be potential side effects, but the penicillin family, to me, I think is one of the safest out there. Uh, the only side effects that I've seen from massive doses in humans of penicillin 
penicillin family antibiotic uh, was basically, uh, you know, diarrhea, um, which could be could be severe uh, and could lead to dehydration and things like that, um, or joint pain. I don't know why, but that was the only thing that I saw, and they were taking three to four grams a day for a month, uh, which I hope, you know, you're not taking unless you have meningitis or some sepsis or some other kind of like really systemic, you know, uh, dangerous infection. So yeah, no reason to fear the antibiotics. It, it's at least the more the safer families like the macrolides and the penicillins and the tetracyclines. And if you are using the tetracyclines and you're using the forty to fifty milligrams daily, I don't think it's anything to fear. It's probably about as safe as vitamin K. Sweet. Okay, we have one last super chat, but let's just uh, throw this out there one more time. Subscribe, like the stream, leave a comment if you want to be entered in next week's uh, Tokovit giveaway, and um, you have a pretty good chance of winning. So please. Uh, uh, enter. Um, Idea Labs DC, Georgie Dinkov's supplement company, boutique supplement company. Check that out, idealabsdc.com. Follow Georgie on uh, Twitter at Hate It. You can follow me at Twitter at Danny Roddy. I do one to one coaching, and you can go to dannyroddy.com slash resources and check out the details there. I do email and Skype coaching. And uh, people, since I did the the one, the single coaching, uh, I kind of took a hit on the uh, like subscribe Patreon coaching. And so I've decided to do like a discount. So if you wanted continuous help over three months, I would throw in an extra month for free if that was um, appealing. And, and a lot of people do sign up for multiple sessions. So I think that's uh, a good way to go if you're interested in that. And then I have these charts and Instagram and testing thyroid function. And I've tried to make this this page as useful as possible so it wasn't just an advertisement. Um, my Instagram, I think, is helpful for people trying to visualize uh, different foods that in like a bioenergetic context. And then, uh, so this is today. This is the live stream schedule with Georgie. I'm attentively or more than attentively going to do a, a solo hangout stream on February <laughs> 11th. And so that's going to be awesome. that's going to be uh, 6 a.m. Uh, Pacific time, and that's going to be 6 p.m. my night time. And so, depending on how that will go, uh, uh, is if I'll do them again. Uh, I was resistant to doing that, but I I think I think I could add some value there. So I I think I do want to do it. And then Georgie will be rejoining me on the 21st. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, 21st. Well, it's up to you. I mean, I, I that's know, not, but, that's uh, not whatever. That's not next week, is it? Uh, no, I mean, it's like it should be two weeks yeah, from now because it's the 7th. Yeah. It was supposed to be yesterday yeah. and 7 and 14 is 21. Okay, yeah. So Georgie will be back here the, the 21st. And then if the first solo stream goes well, I'll do one on the 25th. Emma, I owe a huge apology to Emma. You know, she was totally ready to come on and do like a interesting Ray Pete inspired nutrition stream with me. And I, I didn't have my battery thing figured out. I went to go buy a battery and it was DOA and I, now I have it figured out, you know, but I totally, uh, she like got a babysitter probably for children and things. And I just totally dropped the ball on that. So Huge apology to Emma Sarakis, who uh, is an amazing individual. And I'll, as soon as I can uh, become less embarrassed about wasting her time, I will ask her back on the stream to do something with me. But um, I know a lot of people were excited about that, and I totally dropped the ball. So huge thank you to Emma for working with me and, and being so cool. Okay, so last uh, super chat from Jerry B. again. So this is ulcerative colitis for $5. He says, uh, let me switch screens here. 
He says, uh, follow-up prednisone question for ulcerative colitis. Uh, my dose is 40 milligrams per day. Is that high? Also, is, pre That's, yeah. is prednisone cortisol? And uh, why do TNF-A uh, blockers work for ulcerative colitis? So TNF is a major inflammatory mediator. Um, so that they actually used for pretty much every autoimmune condition. If you go and check the drug Humira, I think the primary its primary mechanism of action is a is a TNA TNFA tumor necrosis factor alpha blocker. Um, Forty milligrams of prednisone is not that much. It's still considered physiological dose, but at that at that dose, after about a month, you're probably going to start to see some downregulation if you're in your own endogenous adrenal activity. Um, so at that point, I will start to get worried. I, I don't know for how long you've been taking it. Um, at that dosage, 40 milligrams, um, it's basically, um, I mean, it's it's anything over 100 is a problem, and it, they usually limit it to about a week at most. So for, you're kind of like in the middle of that. Um, and I, I've seen the, the Medrol, which is prednisone. Medrol is just a, it's just a trade name for prednisone. Um, is typically given in in uh, in dosages of 20 milligram cap, uh, tablets daily. You take one, and you can take it for up to a month. Um, so if, if that has risks for adrenal suppression, I think the 40 milligrams would also do. But again, it's physiological dose. Uh, anything more than 100, that's pharmacological dose, and the doctor is, will probably want to see you on a semi regular basis, like you know at least once a week to to test for your for your adrenal function and see if you're getting suppressed. Um, but, uh, other than that, 40 milligrams, anything more than a month, you're probably going to start getting some blood sugar issues. Uh, potentially skin will start getting saggy. You start getting easy bruising. Uh, like when you fall, you'll get like this big blue bruise, um, on your, you know, on your, whatever, wherever you hit yourself, whatever you injured yourself and it takes longer to heal. Um, so it's you're kind of in between between the danger zone and the and the and the you know and the and the non-danger zone, and this is like a it's a less dangerous drug than some of the synthetic glucocorticoids known as like things like uh, dexamethasone or beta-methasone. Uh, the prednisone is is essentially the same as the cortisol that the body produces. Um, I I think it's the exact same hormone, and they just sell it as. Uh, you know, under a commercial name, I think it's typically called Medrol, and they call it Medrol packs. They call them the, these pills that they give you. Um, so yeah, so prednisone is the equivalent of your endogenous cortisol. Uh, it's a glucocorticoid agonist, and then for more extreme cases of ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease, they use synthetic glucocorticoid agonists, which are much more potent. Um, the most common one is dexamethasone, and it's usually given in dosages of one to two milligrams. Uh, daily because it's that much more potent. Um, so 40 milligrams are fine. You could probably mitigate some of its effects, but I wouldn't do this without consulting with a doctor. Uh, you can probably mitigate some of the effects of the of the prednisone by taking a little bit of pregnenolone with it. Uh, an older study, uh, actually a series of studies by Hans Selye back in the 60s and 70s demonstrated that when you combine pregnenolone with an endpoint steroid, such as cortisol or testosterone or the hydrotestosterone, the pregnenolone tends to potentiate the, the the effects that you want from that specific end steroid while at the same time protecting from some of its really bad side effects. Um, and in this case, we know because pregnenolone has an anti-cortisol effect. So it's not going to 
the it's not going to uh, negate the anti-inflammatory effect, which is what you want. But at the same time, it may protect some from some of the atrophy uh, of skin and organs and muscles and bone, and potentially may protect from some of the adrenal suppression that prednisone will cause if you continue to take it for more than a month. Awesome. Thank you so much, Georgie. Uh, thank you to my dear, dear close friend, John Flaherty. He says, Danny, making it rain, Roddy, for $49.99. Uh, one of the, the the few open-minded people I knew in San Francisco, so uh, really value his friendship. Uh, and Emma Sarakis doesn't hate me, and she says, I forgive you, so I, so I appreciate that. <laughs> um, guys, thank you so much, Uh just amazing as always, Georgie. Thank you for making this stream what it is, you know. And, and thank you for being so flexible. I think I moved this like three times, uh, and then we fi- we finally caught each other today. So thank you so much. Well, I moved it too. I mean, that was supposed to be yesterday, right? It's it's okay. But guys, thank you for watching. You know, this wouldn't the show wouldn't be anything without our viewership. So thanks for that. And yep. uh, yeah, next week hopefully a solo show, and we'll see how that goes. Um, Guys, have a safe uh, weekend, or uh, hope you're having a safe weekend. And Georgie, any any parting words? Um, I don't know. I mean, I guess <laughs> you'll probably start seeing more Georgie studies. Uh, so, I, I mean, hopefully there will be more to come. I think there's some pretty exciting things going on. I finally found a way to test many of these very controversial ideas that uh, uh, will hopefully will generate a lot of publicity if we manage to repeat them, especially like uh, – we think that it's possible to create immortality in the lab. Uh, it's based off of an old discussion that I had on the forum about um, whether cells are immortal or not, whether, whether the Hayflick limit is really there. So there, there's a user, um, his alias is Bert Lancast. I think it stands for Bert Lancaster. I think he's French. Mm-hmm. So we're having this discussion. He said, like, well, can you find any evidence that that uh, cells are really immortal and the Hayflick limit is, is bunk? So I started looking for these cell cultures that are being sold by by labs here in the United States. And then typically the only mortal cells that are known, that are sold officially as immortal are can- cancer cells, specifically the HeLa line mm-hmm. from Henri- Henriette, I think whatever her name was, she had ovarian cancer, died in the 1940s, but her cells are still there. They're the most widely used cancer cell culture in the world. So anyway, so you start looking into it and then you'll see that cells apparently can be kept alive indefinitely. They wouldn't call it immortal. But they do say indefinitely, if you keep him in a culture that's completely free of fats. Now, we're going to try to replicate that and hopefully with some higher um, complexity living creatures. We're going to start with yeast. And then after that, hopefully like a, ma- a, a mouse or a rodent model. Um, and then I already said about uh, like trying to reverse aging and stuff like that. And uh, there's one of our products that uh, I didn't realize I should have paid more attention to it. But it's the pyroset, which is a combination of ethyl pyruvate and ethyl acetoacetate. Mm-hmm. So we were selling it, uh, we're still selling it as like a fatty acid oxidation inhibitor. I did not pay attention, but apparently three to four studies about ethyl pyruvate in cancer show complete cure of the cancer. So we're going to try to replicate that. So it will be pretty exciting if we can get a cancer cure, um, you know, with uh, with an over-the-counter ingredient. So that's that's upcoming as well. So you should be seeing a lot more studies that are George's studies. Um, and some like validation of uh, both Pete's work and the work of many other people he cites. So uh, hopefully if it's done by me, you'll be, I mean, I will trust my results more, right? <laughs> Instead of reading about people's results from the 50s and 60s. And more important than that, we'll try to replicate some stuff because some of the main criticisms that I'm getting, always getting from actual doctors about Pete's work is that 
man, the guy keeps quoting ancient stuff. Like, and the and argument has always been like, if it's if it hasn't been replicated, then me that means medicine has given up on it because it's wrong. Yeah. Something came up along the lines that proved that this is not true, and that's why we're not pursuing it anymore. So I'll try to revive some of those some of some of the main ideas behind the metabolic theory, which relate to aging, relate to cancer, relate to immortality, really. So let's see what happens. Twenty twenty should be exciting here. Straight from the source. Wow, look at that 100% battery. That is amazing. <laughs> okay, guys, thank you so much. Uh, sincerely appreciate it. Uh, see you guys soon. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you, Georgie. Thank you, everyone. Talk to you guys soon. Peace out.